I'd like to review a movie that I saw. I saw Edward Scissorhands for the first time, even though it's been out a while. I saw it on video cassette. And I just want to say the first half was really good, because not only was the part played by Johnny Depp good, but the part of the two adoptive parents, the Avon lady and her husband, they were very funny, and I like the parody aspect mainly that everyone's watering their lawns in the suburbs. All the houses are pink, green, blue, yellow, pink, green, blue, yellow, and all this other stuff was really funny. All the old cars, and you know, Michael, not Michael J. Fox, um, that dude from the Breakfast Club, the little kid, uh, damn, Anthony Michael Hall, that's it. He played a good part as a bad guy, which I thought he was too nerdy to even do. But then in the second half, you know, after. Edward robs the house by accident and you know and all the people think he's like the Antichrist and then they chase him to the mountain where his old mansion used to be. I mean it's very sad towards the end and that he can't have his love interest who's played by Winona Ryder, so you know. The thing is that the movie I thought was gonna be funny, it was directed by Tim Burch and he's known for camp films like Batman and Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but then it just got to be a downer the last half and didn't laugh as much and just got depressed, you know, not really depressed, but movie depressed, so, anyway, that's my opinion on Edward Scissorhands, I'd give it two stars out of four, the first half is great, the second half, yeah, but, I mean, watch it, don't watch it, I'm not going to say whether I recommend it or not, I'm kind of, not a thumbs up or thumbs down, but oh, kind of man, a, honey, oh, okay, never mind, Bob, I'll be off in a second, that's okay, that's okay, is that Lucy? Yeah, Lucy, are I'm you on, I'm on hold right now, Mom, well, who are you talking to? I was talking to her mom. Can you, Mom, can you hang up? Sure. Good cover, anyway. So I give it not a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but a sideways thumbs. Anyway, this has been Ken Scaler. Bye-bye. A sideway thumbs from Ken Scaler. Welcome, everybody, to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Drexel Show. In case you're wondering what that was, that was our very own Ken Scaler reviewing Edward Scissorhands in 1990, when he was just 20 years old, on... Like a hotline people called for local movie reviews. It was like a, it was called Movie Phone. And uh, I've heard this before. And <laughs> A Brown 83 found it by just uh, Googling Ken Scaler. And I thought some of you who are Ken Scaler fans might enjoy that. Anyway, today is February 26, 2013. The Druff and Drexel show. Once again, without Drexel, it's been kind of commonplace in the year 2013. He will be back. I have a lot of people contacting me saying, well, it's apparent that Drexel's gone, huh? No, he's not gone. He has been absent, but uh, he will return. I'll tell you, it's probably going to be around the time when all the work he's been putting in regarding the Jacob situation is over, or mostly over. That's around when he will return. He told me this himself. Uh, I hung out with him on Sunday night, and uh, that's what he told me, so I, I have no reason to doubt him, and, you know, he'll come back when he comes back, but this is still the Druff and Drexel show, and it will continue to be until he either returns or decides not to return, but I think he's going to return, and he thinks he's going to return, so uh, tonight we're going to have Seriously Serious on, at least I think we will, he said he'll come on. And, uh, yeah, let's put him on right now. Hopefully he'll answer the phone, or I'll look stupid. And uh, someone asked in the chat, what's with the Harry Potter music in the background? Actually, in 1990, there was no Harry Potter, but uh, I agree, it was kind of weird music in the background. But, uh, you know, this was like a phone thing. You'd call up and listen to different people reviewing movies. So the guy who ran the movie phone 
wanted just some kind of, I guess, background music so people would enjoy it a little bit more, or it wouldn't just sound like a guy talking on the phone. Seriously, serious, are you here? Yes. Hello, can you turn up your mic a little bit? Actually, let me, let me see if it's your mic or my volume. Uh, talk now. Hello? Yeah, you sound a little bit soft to me. Let me All see right, if I, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll let me see if I can that. turn you up, actually. All right. So I usually have the person calling in turned down so they don't they're not louder than me. Okay, let's try it now. Testing. One, two. Alright, very good. So um seriously serious, the co host tonight <laughs> someone in the chat said you sound like you're in a cave in Afghanistan. So I guess it's not just me thinking that you're soft, but uh, you sound a little bit better now, and uh, yeah, always turn yourself up to the maximum, and I'll adjust it uh, on my end, but, uh, uh-oh, is, is radio off? Let me see. Now radio looks okay to me. False alarm. False alarm, not scary. Everyone me. calm down. It, sc- it scares fine. Me. It scares me. Every time people say in the chat, oh, radio down, I'm like, oh, shit, I, like, my, my stomach just sinks. Like, I get the same feeling like when I was 17 and a girl broke up with me. Like, it feels the same way. Like, oh, my God. I didn't want to Listen, hear that. Listen, Todd, I really, I really enjoy that Ken Scaler um, thing that you played at the beginning of the show, and I'd like to resubmit an idea that I posited once before, and that is that you should open the phone lines up, or not open them, but encourage people to call in when the show's not on the air and leave messages and play them from time to time. You know, I should do this, that. This community's full of lots of very clever, funny people, especially in small doses, like the, uh, the tags yeah. that get left on threads are yeah. always very good. That's true. I should I should have that. I should uh, get that hotline ready for people to leave messages and then just play some every week. That's a good idea. And I've heard it done on other radio shows in the past, and they've always been funny. So, all right. Uh, we will do that. It's a good suggestion. Let me tell you what else we're doing tonight. Uh, we, we do have a $33 free roll. I'm sorry it's not 50 this week, but, uh, you know, these are tough times. And uh, sometimes you just don't you just don't get the fifty dollars back or otherwise. So tonight we have thirty three dollars. I do thank the two people who donated: Richard Brody's Comb Over, who donated eight dollars, and Dirty Ernie, who donated twenty five. So thank you to the two of them. And uh, three prizes tonight: first place fifteen, second place ten dollars, third place eight dollars. I will send this to you by PayPal, bank transfer, or check. PM me after you win to claim your prize, but you need a registered account on Poker Fraud Alert prior to May 21st, 2012, if you want to qualify for the free money. If you do not have a registered account on PokerFraudAlert.com before May 21st, you can PM me to Dan Druff, that's Dan Space Druff, or you can email me, dandruff at PokerFraudAlert.com, and tell me how long you've been listening, how much you've been lurking the forum, the things you enjoy about the show, the things you don't enjoy. And if I'm convinced you've been listening for a while, or been here for a while, I will give you an exemption, and you will be able to win tonight's money and future free roll money, but make sure you do this before you play, not after you win the prize. And make sure you're not Jay Searles. That's right. He's been making so many accounts. I've banned his IP, so hopefully we won't see him at chat. And uh, we have given away more money on this radio show than any other poker podcast. More money by far, if you combine all the money. I mean, this is one of the smaller weeks we've done. But we've had money from just about every single week that we've run this show. So uh, I appreciate the users of this community for giving this um, all this money to the to 
the other members of the community for these free rolls. So anyway. Uh, oh, Jeff, uh, we've got some uh, additional donors in the chat. Oh. Looks like... Uh, oh, Simp Dog said he'll send uh, 17. All right, very good. Round it up. So round it up, back to $50. So uh, now officially... It will be, I'm going to just like figure this out on the fly, use my math skills. I did take some advanced math courses in college, so let me try to remember. Um, first place will be, uh, I'll make it $20. Second place, I will make uh, $13. Third place, I will make, uh, uh, it was 8 before, so I can't make it lower than that. It's still $8. Uh, fourth place will be, uh, what, what do we have left now? Now it can be, was it 20, 13, 8? I haven't taken these advanced math courses. Damn it, I'm already failing here. Uh, five and four. There we go. 2013, eight, five, and four. So we pay five places. Yes, there's a $4 prize this week. So thank you to SimpDog for uh, rounding it up to 50 bucks. So um, if you want to donate to the free roll, just uh, you can always just send me money on PayPal, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, and then just PM me here, and I will add it to that next week's free roll. Always appreciated. I'm not looking to keep any of this money for myself, just uh, to give it away to users of the site who listen live and want to play some poker in the background. Let me give you my agenda. Uh, by the way, if you want to play the free roll, it starts at 740 and it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that at the top of the screen. You need to register an account, but everything is free. So you don't even have to put your real email address. Let me give you the agenda for the night, for, for tonight. Um, talk a little bit about the very scary shooting on Las Vegas Boulevard that resulted in three people's deaths, including two who are definitely innocent bystanders. And I'll talk about how safe I feel Las Vegas is especially by the Strip, where most of the tourists go. Legalized poker is here, sort of, in Nevada. When I say here, I don't mean you can play. I don't mean it even exists yet, but uh, it has been legalized. In the state of Nevada, the governor, Brian Sandoval, has signed a bill legalizing online poker in Nevada. Uh, New Jersey coming very, very soon. So what's the story? Are we going to have legalized poker in the U.S.? And is Nevada going to somehow parlay this into all 50 states playing online poker kind of cooperating with Nevada. Is that possible? Will that happen? I'm going to talk about it, what I think of the whole situation so far. There's been some question about that ladies event at the World Series of Poker. The $9,000 penalty that uh, is being given to men who want to enter. So it costs the men 10000 and the women 1000 I know we talked about this somewhat last week. But something I learned this week was that the $9,000 penalty for the men in the event, is also going to be raked, which I think is very wrong. And I'll talk a little bit about that. And also I will talk about the events I'm playing in the World Series this year. I'll be playing a lighter schedule since, uh, for, yeah, the lightest, lightest schedule I've ever played since 2006, only 2005. I will have played fewer events than I'm going to play this year, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to give you guys an update on the John Jacob Sepulveda scam. Give an update every week since that happened, and uh, got a little more to say this week, including a hundred-page report about the scam that is going to law enforcement today, or probably has already gone there. We're going to have a guest tonight. We have a guest host. We're also going to have a guest, Scott Bell, also known as Eleven Grover. 
Um, controversial guy in that uh, he's very aggressive. He's a UB investigator. He doesn't work for UB. I mean, he actually investigates UB for the general public on his own. He's not hired by anyone. He works for himself. To he's trying to make a documentary all about the UB cheating scandal, and uh, uh, he's actually angered some people involved with the same sort of thing. People like Haley Hintz. Uh, certain people don't like Scott Bell. I've never had a problem with him. In fact, I appeared in the documentary that has yet to be released, but I did go over to a house he was renting and uh, appeared in the documentary. And if it ever is released and my part isn't cut, then you'll see me. Uh, we're going to have him on tonight. He's going to talk about the upcoming documentary, uh, of what he thinks of Travis McCarr's reappearance, and other things that might be of interest to anyone who's been following the UB scandal. Uh, maybe Ken Scaler will call in, maybe he won't. And um, anything else that we end up talking about, you know, you never know what uh, we have to say on this show. Phone numbers to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, that's 775-372-8355. If you don't want to call that number, you can also call a number in 702. It is an old phone that sits on top of Mount Charleston, which honestly doesn't have all that much to know this year. Mount Charleston... Uh, which also has a ski resort. It just they got a little bit of snow, but really it's it's kind of kind of dry up there. But it's still cold. And you can call that old phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is our Mount Charleston line. You have to show your caller ID no matter which number you call. Otherwise, you'll probably get like a busy signal and not get through. And uh, it's not because I'm collecting people's info. I actually throw away these numbers after the show's over. But uh, I always like to see who's calling, so I'm not uh, inundated with anonymous prank calls. It's bad enough that we get some prank calls where I do see the people's phone number. So uh, that's the agenda for tonight. I don't think it's going to be a super long show, but uh, you never know. And I don't think it's going to be a really short show. So uh, we will see how things go. And as always, if you want to talk about anything, you can always uh, call in. Just uh, please wait to call in prior to... uh, or please wait to call in until it seems like we have kind of a lull, not like in the middle of a big segment. When I say a big segment, I mean like if I'm making like a big rant about something or if we're in an interview or something, I'm not going to take your call unless it's time to take calls for the interview. But um, you can call pretty much any other time and I'll probably take your phone call. I always like to hear from the listeners. I know a lot of people just like to listen, and that's fine. But uh, I always like to hear from people, especially new people that I've never heard from before. So that's the story. Uh, we also might have another co-host in the future, either a third co-host or a second co-host. Karina Jett, who has occasionally co-hosted or guested on a previous show I was part of, she has volunteered to me to appear as a co-host on this show, especially when Brandon can't make it, so we will probably be taking her up on that offer in the future. Anyway, uh, let's get right to the stuff we're going to talk about. I'll, I'll jump right into the first thing on the agenda, the shooting on Las Vegas Boulevard, which I'm sure everyone's heard about by now. It's been the top story in the news for the past week or so. Um, seriously, serious. what was your reaction when you heard about this? Well, it reaffirmed my decision to go ahead and get out of the rap game, Todd. <laughs> because that ain't no joke. And uh, the thug life did not choose me. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if you saw this uh, news report that a rapper was shot uh, in front of 
Bellagio on Vegas Boulevard, and then you see a picture of Seriously Serious. Oh, oh dear. You, you think like everyone's expecting a black guy, and you see that's 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 not the legacy I want for my fans, you know. I, I know, I know. It just it would be funny though, just because everyone would be expecting something so different than you. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not going out like that. Actually, I'm I'm not that up on this story. I understand that uh, some of the people involved were rappers or fancied themselves rappers, but that's really all I know. And that uh, some innocent people got shot as well. Yeah, well, not not shot. It was worse. It was actually worse than getting shot. They burned to death in a, an exploding car. Dear God. This is a really really bad story, and it really resonated with me because I have been at that exact location. At that exact time, so many times. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times I've driven in front of the Bellagio, uh, driven past or around that intersection, uh, Flamingo, Flamingo and Las Vegas Boulevard, at around 4.30 in the morning. It's very common that I'm there around that time. And something I never think of is, well, I wonder if I'm going to get killed right now. Like, you, you just don't ever think that. Like, I even think that sometimes when I'm on the freeway. I'm going like you know 90 miles per hour down the 15. Then I think, oh wow, it would suck if I got in an accident here. I wonder if I'd die. But I never think about that just driving, you know, 40 miles per hour down the strip. And uh, now I have to say that uh, the way these two innocent people died probably would not happen to me because I'm never in cabs in Las Vegas, and uh, these cabs had a flaw to them, which I'll talk about in a second. But basically, what happened, if you haven't heard. Uh, two guys got into an argument in the Aria Valet area. I'm not sure what it was about. There's been some rumors that they were both pimps, but I don't know for sure. And it was two black guys. And Drunk, please. Peddlers. Panderers. Not pimps. I, I thought you were saying the police about the black guys. You're, you're just saying no. that uh, you don't care about the black guy part, you just care about the uh, the pimp part. Yes. Okay. That's offensive. <laughs> so, so the two panderers, allegedly... Uh, got in that argument, and then uh, the area is you know, further down Las Vegas Boulevard, but as they were by Flamingo, the one of them was in a Maserati, one of them was in an SUV, the guy in the SUV just rained bullets into the Maserati, the driver was shot and killed, the passenger was shot but not killed, and then the Maserati, you know, now being driven by a dead driver, rammed into a taxi cab from behind and the taxi cab exploded like you see on TV. And I always thought that was like so stupid whenever like a car hits another car and there's this gigantic explosion. I go, that doesn't really happen. I mean, like not usually. You don't see exploding cars that often. But My thoughts exactly. I thought for a car to explode, the, the, uh, the gas tank would have to be at a, a specific pressure and have a certain amount of fuel in it, and conditions have to be perfect. Because I know when they make cars explode in movies, they either use explosives or they uh, they set things up just perfect so the thing will actually explode. Yeah. So it's it's weird that this even actually happened. It, it should be close to impossible. Yeah. Well, the reason it wasn't impossible is that apparently the taxi cab was fueled by propane, and I don't think it's been verified, but that's what is is believed. And uh, the next day, all of these cabs were taken out of service. But uh, how stupid is that? How how can you fuel a taxi cab with propane? I, it it I, shouldn't take I've something like this. It. it shouldn't take something like this to to put a stop to that. I don't know how that's even legal. But uh, that's what they were fueled with apparently, and that's why it it exploded. And uh, so this explosion happens, and the the cab just becomes like a fireball. And both people, the taxi driver and the passenger, are trapped inside, 
And uh, I don't know if they burned to death or died of smoke inhalation, but that's a worse way to go than uh, than, than being shot. So that's that's. Tell really... me, tell me about this fly. The the passengers were apparently unable to escape. Yeah, I, I think it. I, I'm not sure why. Maybe because uh, fire was everywhere. I, I don't know what happened, but, they, but or maybe they were just too hurt from the uh, the collision. But they they were not able to get out. They died well, in I, the taxi cab. I hear that sometimes cab drivers will actually lock the doors for the back seat until the the fare has been paid. Yeah, but the taxi he he couldn't get out either. The driver. So. Oh, I see. But I, I don't know why they couldn't get out. I have to think that it was just. Uh, I just think it was such a bad explosion that they were injured or uh, already burning, or you know, that could probably wasn't that easy to just you know get up and leave. And the, and the taxi cab was uh, banged up as well. Sometimes the doors don't even open. So well, that's that's in front of the Bellagio. There's a fountain right there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, what, what if, if yeah, I guess if they did get out, they could have hopped the fence and jumped in the fountain. They, that would have been their their one out. But they just couldn't yeah, get out of that cab. Sounds like fun. But it, but seriously though, it's it's a it's a very uh, Unfortunate story, and it does hit close to home to me because of how many times I'm there at that time of night, and I, you just never think there's a danger. Now, now, do I feel nervous to drive around at 4.30 in the morning on the Vegas Strip? No, this is a fluke. But uh, still, the question is, how safe is Las Vegas? And the answer is that it's actually pretty safe if you stay by the Strip. There really is not very much crime, at least violent crime. Like, right on the Strip. Just because there's so many people, it's so hard to commit a violent crime there unless you're just totally crazy like that dude who, who, who committed this crime to just shoot a guy there on the Strip because he had an argument with him. But uh, most people do not commit violent crime on the Strip just because it's so easy to get caught and there's just so many people around. Now, away from the Strip, there's plenty of uh, violence. There's pr- plenty of crime in Las Vegas. It's not a particularly safe city. Uh, it's not a total slum. It's not one of the worst cities as far as crime is concerned, but there is plenty of violent crime in Vegas, and uh, they obviously don't like to talk about that, but they don't want to scare people, because, you know, the Strip is pretty safe, but you go a mile away, especially in the eastern direction, and it's it's not all that safe anymore. So uh, if you're right on the Strip, right on Vegas Boulevard, you know, you can walk around any time of night, you're pretty safe. Uh, go a little bit to the east, I would not be walking around late at night. And females definitely should not be walking around late at night uh, a little bit east of the Strip. But I, I think Vegas itself, like, for ter- for tourists who mostly come to the Strip, is pretty safe. And uh, this was obviously a fluke. And uh, I hope they take all the propane-fueled taxi cabs out of service for good. That's really bad news. So, uh, anyway, uh, let me... And by the way, I used to live in one of those areas that was... Bad, like, directly east of the Strip. It was only like a three-quarters of a mile from the Strip down Flamingo. It's right where a Tupac got shot, actually. But, uh... Already a pretty bad area right there. Anyway, uh, let's talk about something that affects more of us. The legalized poker in Nevada. Legalized online poker, that is. Poker's been legalized for a very long time. But legalized online poker... Um... Now, remember, there was a law passed in D.C. that allowed online poker, but D.C. has such a tiny population that it just never went anywhere. But Nevada, which, of course, also has uh, a lot of gaming there, of the non-online variety, they, they at least have the background, the gaming background there, to implement it, where D.C. would be a disaster to implement, and there would be uh, 600,000 people that could play. So that's why it never happened there. But in Nevada, 
obviously is a, a natural starting point. And uh, some of you might be saying, wait a minute. I thought we already heard this story. I thought uh, Nevada already legalized online poker to play within the state of Nevada. And I thought that uh, the South Point already got a license to do it and was supposed to be up and running by October 2012. Now, that didn't happen, but how did they ever get that license to do it if uh, it wasn't legal before? What just changed now? Well, what changed is that uh, Nevada realized that they had a hurdle they had to overcome. And that was um, the federal law regarding online poker, that it was, it was kind of unclear whether it was legal for Nevada to offer it, even within their own state, when the federal government says, hey, online poker is illegal within the United States. So how do they do it? So this, what they did here, this law, is actually uh, something that uh, they, they get around. Let me get the exact article here, which I should have had up, but I always produce the show during the show. That's just something, uh, something I always do. <laughs> uh, while while I'm looking for this, uh, seriously, have you read about this? Not really. I, I've heard about it. Um, I really don't really. I don't know what uh, ramifications this has in terms of practicality. How soon people will actually be playing online poker in the state of Nevada? Um, I understand that there's some interest in having this working interstate, so that people are yes, interstate, so that people in Nevada can be playing with New Jersey. Players, right? And things like that, right? So, that's but no, no, pretty ignorant on the subject here. So, the, let me tell you the the, uh, the cliffs on this. I've pulled up my notes on it. Um, the bill was passed on February twenty first, five days ago, as an emergency measure to go to Governor Sandoval to sign, which he did. Uh, it would repeal a Nevada state law that required waiting for federal action on the issue before allowing it to take place in Nevada, because uh, even though it was legal in Nevada, the, the second part said, hey. Uh, we actually are not going to run any online poker. It's actually illegal to run it until the federal government says okay. Well, this just did away with that law. This was a Nevada law saying it's not legal until the federal government signs off on this too. They just took that part out. That's just gone. So they they took away that state law. So now they can actually run it. Uh, It would allow for what you just said, interstate cooperation with other states allowing legalized online poker, such as New Jersey, which is going to have online poker legalized very shortly as well. Uh, So this would expand the player base beyond Nevada's relatively small population. Because if you have a small population, you're just not going to have a very busy room. You need uh, as many potential players as possible. Like a room, a state room for California only would probably do very well because California has a huge population. A state room for Montana only or Alaska only would be a disaster because there's hardly any people in those states. Or Uh, Texas. No, Texas has a lot of people. Which which category are you putting Texas in? Please, please have uh, state statewide poker in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, so Texas, uh, yeah, another huge state. So, so what they're trying to do in Nevada is they're trying to not just have their own residents play, but they're trying to have cooperation where other states opt in, and then they can share player pools, kind of like uh, each state is a skin for the other state. So you, even though it's a Nevada state room you're playing with, you might be playing against people in New Jersey on the New, New Jersey state room skin. So uh, they're kind of going to make kind of like a merge network, except uh, without all the cash-out problems and without squeezing all the skins off. So they're trying to make like a merge network of skins on this network that uh, you know originally starts kind of based in Nevada, and they're hoping to eventually get all 50 states which would be equivalent 
to federally legalize online poker. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. There will be a number of states that just won't have an interest in this, and probably most of them won't. But uh, if they can get a few key states, California, New York, as, as Seriously Serious just said, Texas, uh, or even just starting off with Nevada and New Jersey, because New Jersey has a sizable population, uh, that would already have a, a decent pool of players, and it wouldn't be a failed room. Because if it was just Nevada, it would be a failed room. Uh, now, who could play on this if it was just Nevada? It would be anyone physically in Nevada. It wouldn't matter if you lived there. It would matter if you were physically located there. So you could be from anywhere. As long as you're sitting in Nevada at that moment, you could play the online poker. Uh, but at the same time, if you're a Nevada resident, I don't think you could play if you're outside of the state. I think you actually have to physically be in Nevada or in one of the other states that is cooperating with Nevada. How would they determine this? Uh, they're going to try to put in some what they call geolocating technology, which of course is fallible and you can trick it, but it's going to be uh, trying to determine from the IP where you're located. And um, in, in some ways they can determine that very easily. Other ways it may be harder depending on uh, what internet connection you're using. It's pretty easy to do if it's like a home internet connection, unless you're using like a VPN. But uh, it'd be harder to do like if someone's using their cell phone connection. So uh, I, I bet there will be some flaws both ways, flaws that allow people to play not being in Nevada and flaws that shut out people legitimately in Nevada that are coming up somewhere else. Through Sounds thing. like a nice opportunity to set up some server farms in Nevada and sell proxies. Yes, except it would probably be illegal to do that. You'd probably want to set up these server farms in another country and uh, not, ever let, not ever set foot in Nevada if you do that. But um, I, I haven't heard about whether they're criminalizing that, but I have to imagine they probably would. Uh, they, they're going to be setting the licensing fee at $500,000. That's going to be the fee to get a license to uh, actually offer online poker, which doesn't sound like very much. I mean, that's... Uh, you think, oh, $500,000 is a lot of money. Well, no, it's not. You think of how much you could make running an online room, especially with you know, probably very little competition. And uh, If I recall correctly, they left themselves some wiggle room. They did. So, so actually they could – it could be $500,000, but it could be – they could change it later to where it's not locked in at 500000 They can make it to where the licensing fee is as low as 150000 and they could make it to where it's as high as <laughs> – one million dollars. So that's that's the licensing fee. It could be anywhere from in that range, but it'll start at 500k, and then they'll see what they want to do with it. Who can get a license? The license would only be granted to a quote resort hotel that holds a non-restricted license to operate games and gaming devices. So what does that mean? That means only existing Nevada casinos can run online rooms. Uh, what about poker stars? What if they come in and buy some crappy casino in Nevada? Well, here's the answer to that. Any companies that participated in illegal online gambling between 2006 and 2011, such as poker stars, will be ineligible to offer games for a period of five years. So they might be able to do it one day, but not for five years, not till 2018. And this likely includes if PokerStars buys a Vegas casino and tries to apply for a license. I don't think that's a way they can work around it. I think that uh, if your company ever offered illegal online gaming to U.S. players between 06 and 11, then you've got to wait five years. And the reason they say they're doing this is not to punish them, but uh, to allow for the existing fail rooms that are going to pop up. Not existing, but the, the, the upcoming fail rooms 
that are going to pop up, probably with terrible software and uh, all kinds of issues, to not be crushed by a site like PokerStars that's been at the game for over 10 years. So they they want uh, some time to build a market, uh, you know, to get a market share, to learn the industry, to make everything work right so they can compete with PokerStars. I have some silly questions. Yeah. Every, every, uh, every bar and most restaurants and even gas stations in Las Vegas all have uh, video poker and things like that. Do they require a gaming license of any kind to be able to have those games in their businesses? Uh, yes, they they do have to have uh, a license for that. Now, there are those I, hard to get. I, I I'm not sure. I, I believe there's different kinds of licenses though about how many machines you can have and how many table games and with and betting sports. So there's I believe there's a number of types of uh, licenses, but I, I'm not totally sure with the whole process or uh, I'm not all that familiar with that stuff. But uh, okay. Uh, now, my next question is: How does one define a resort hotel as it's written in this bill? That's could a good I question. could I just get together like I don't know. A small property with, say, 15 rooms that people could stay in and line them with video poker machines and say, hey, I have a hotel resort that has kind of a casino in it. Now I want to get into the online poker game. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, Zach from Quad Jacks, the snake in the grass, uh, he apparently wants to run an online poker room because he calls his house a hotel since uh, people like you live there for a while. (laughs) And uh, so so I I asked Zach, uh, you know, are you serious about this? You're really going to run an online room, and this is what he had to say. But, yeah, that's a good question. What constitutes a resort hotel? And I have to imagine there's some sort of uh, definition of a resort hotel has been, you know, it has to have this number of rooms, and it it probably has some sort of full definition to it, to where you can't just uh, have a, a little motel with a few video poker games in the front. That uh, you can't run an online uh, casino. But uh, um, the last thing is that only poker will be allowed. There won't be sports betting or casino games on these sites. The bill said that they they don't want to compete with the exist. Well, there, I guess there's two reasons. They they, may, they named one, but I know the other one. One of the reasons is just the they don't want to compete with the brick and mortar casinos. They they don't want to stop people from coming to Las Vegas to play blackjack or roulette or craps or whatever. But the bigger reason is that they don't want to piss off the federal government. They know the federal government is kind of softest right now about poker as far as how illegal they feel it is. And the federal government hates internet sports betting or casino games. So they're trying to take the lesser of all the gambling evils. And that's why they're only allowing poker. So how do I feel about this? Well, I think this is a a good development. Uh, I said a long time ago, that the path to federal legalization will be successful state legalization. So if New Jersey and Nevada and some other states combine to provide an online poker site that's legal and and if it's successful, then there will be a lot more pressure on the federal government to allow it. Because then they can say, hey, look, we tried it here, and it works great, and it made us a lot of money, and the state's doing well, and, and we're not having issues with minors gambling, and you know, and there aren't cheating scandals, and everything's great. If everything works out with this whole thing, then the federal government will have much more of a reason to say, all right, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll legalize it for the whole country. Now, this can make a great uh, case study, too, for other states that are kind of kicking the idea around that seem sort of interested yes. in doing the same thing. Yes. They can look at the results of the Nevada online gaming and, you know, get an idea of uh, what challenges there are and how profitable it is and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, uh, so that's, that's very true. And um, I'm sure states like California are watching this closely. 
And I, I know New York has some interest in this as well. And if those states joined on, that would be huge. Because you, if you get California and New York, and if it's actually allowed to do this uh, interstate cooperation thing, which I, I wondered if that's legal. I, I know Nevada thinks it is, but I wonder if the federal government is going to step in and go, whoa, 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 sorry, that's crossing state lines. This is considered federal online poker now. I, I don't know if they're going to interfere. I know the federal government is fine with intrastate online poker, where it's only within your own state. But I don't. once it crosses state lines, I, I don't know if uh, even if both states opt in. I don't know how they're going to feel. We'll have to see what happens. But uh, if California and New York join in, and if the federal government doesn't put a stop to it, then I think that'll be a great path to legalizing online poker federally because you know that's going to be already a large segment of the U.S. population if you get some huge states involved. And uh, even if we don't get all 50 states, if you get most of them, then anybody who wants to play can just move to one of those states. I mean, I know a lot of people can't just get up and move to Nevada or New Jersey, but when you have a, a lot of different states you can move to, that already makes it a lot easier. I mean, we have people moving to Costa Rica and, and uh, Vancouver and all these other places to play online poker. So uh, here you don't even have to leave the country. And if you have a lot of different states in your area, it's always a lot easier to move to a state that's next door to your existing state than to move across the country. And, and one of the biggest reasons it's easier to move is because people you leave behind, you know, friends and family members, you can still see them with a, a drive that takes five hours or so rather than um, you know, being a, a plane ride away. So uh, anyway, I, I hope this happens. I think if this works out, if they don't screw it all up, and if the player pool is interested enough to make this happen, they get enough of a player pool to make this happen, and it serves as a good example, then this could be something that really speeds up the process. People always ask me, when do you think online poker is going to be legalized? And I go, oh man, I don't know. It's going to be years probably. And, and it makes me really depressed to say that because I, I want to play again. I want to play online poker. I want to play on safe sites. I want to play on regulated sites. I want to be able to get my money. I don't want to be in a lock poker situation where they just don't pay you. I, I want to play. I want to play in some good games with fish in there like they used to be. And uh, I want to be able to get my money, and I want to know I'm not being cheated UB style. I want to know my money's not being stolen full tilt style. I'd love to see this. And I, I hope it works out. I really do. So, uh, You said that uh, the companies that are getting shut out are ones that operated after the UGO? Yeah, that, that's I should mention that too. Uh, I didn't specifically say that, but you obviously picked up on that. Uh, okay. If if a company offered online poker to U.S. residents between 2006 and 2011, which obviously the reason they chose those years, 2006 is when the UIGEA was passed that made the financial transactions for online poker illegal, and 2011 was when Black Friday occurred, when all those big busts of the major online poker sites occurred. On April 15th. So even though that period was actually October 2006 through April 2011, uh, Nevada is just simplifying it, saying any time in 2006 through any time in 2011, uh, if you offered online poker any time during that period, then you have to wait five years before you can apply for a license. I'm seeing some speculation in the chat about uh, party poker making a return. Do you think it could possibly pay off that they uh, that they settled with the with the United States government and played nice and left? and left uh, the United States after UGA, unlike the other sites that stuck around? Uh, 
Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, they left at UIGEA, but they were offering poker in 2006. They just stopped in October 2006. So I wonder. Well, so is 2006 just an arbitrary date? It kind of looks like it. Kind of looks like they like. Well, the UIGEA was 2006, and Black Friday was 2011. So. Uh, yeah, 2006 to 2011. That's that's the time we'll say. Like I, I mean, if party gets shut out on that technicality, that's pretty lame. But I think the the thing is, I don't believe that Nevada is that concerned about who followed the law. I think they're concerned that they don't want to start off with their rooms having a big disadvantage compared to ones that had been in the industry. So I think that they just felt by saying those years that they'll pretty much cancel out anyone that uh, had any kind of real experience. They feel that anyone who went out of business before 2005, before 2006 has pretty much been out of the game. And anyone who showed up after 2011 is probably too new to really have much of an advantage. It's probably a fail site by itself. So I think that's the reason behind it, not so much that they want to reward the ones that uh, played nice with the federal government. That's what I think here. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to the return of victory poker. <laughs> Yeah, we should have like a return of all the failed rooms now. The Victory Poker can come back. Um, Felt Stars can come back. Um, what are some other total fail rooms that? Uh... Well, I would say Doyle's room, but uh, yeah, Doyle's room they... another fail. When I say fail ones, I don't mean like cheating rooms like UB and Full Tilt. I mean those those were successful rooms that just cheated everyone. I'm talking about just total fail rooms. How about Poker Spot? Poker Spot is another fail room. Actually, they they sort of cheated people. I mean, when I say sort of, they. Uh, they didn't intend to cheat people, unlike Full Tilt and uh, and UB who intended to. Uh, they didn't start out intending to cheat people, but what what happened was when their payment processor stole from them, instead of Dutch saying, "Hey, you know, my payment processor stole all the money. This sucks. Oh well, time to give up." Uh, then he lied to everybody about that they still had the money to try to get them to deposit, to uh, to make the whole thing, you know, to bring all the money back and have nobody know, be the wiser. And then the whole thing crashed down. And then, of course, Dutch has won tournaments and made money since then. And even though he probably doesn't have much money today, uh, he's never made any kind of effort to pay anyone that lost on Poker Spot. He just kind of says, ah, the payment processor did it to me. And that's not true. The payment processor did do it to him, but uh, he had many opportunities to try to make this right, and he hasn't. Uh, Now, if Dutch won the main event of the World Series, I think he'd probably pay out people from Poker Spot. But... um, I don't think that's that likely. And, uh, We're making kind of a Chino Ream sort of analogy. Pretty here. much. So yeah, he's so. good for it. He just needs to make a big score. <laughs> you know, I'm you know, I miss I miss Paradise Poker. It was kind of lame and quaint, but uh, I think that'd be cool if they could come back. No, I hate I hated Paradise, and the reason I hated it is my computer just did not work with that software. And what would happen would be like uh, I could sometimes see through the cards, so I could see like a, a jack of spades, and there's like a card that's blank that I can actually see through it and see the background of the screen. And uh, it did this on actually more than one computer, so it wasn't just my one computer; it just was a very buggy room. And uh, I, could apparently... you see through your opponent's cards? I wish, but uh, no, it. Uh... It that's not a bug, that's a feature. <laughs> it was always just very buggy for me. I like Planet Poker, and I really like True Poker. True Poker, even though it was so slow, and not really good for someone who's a grinder, it was fun. It was like a social poker room. It's kind of like the social media of poker rooms back in 01. And you'd, you, you, like you'd chat, and your little bubble would, would appear next to your 3D character, and, and you could make all these uh, different expressions with your body. It was really cool. It was back in 01, too. And uh, I've said before on this show, True Poker is the only 
online poker site that led to me having sex with a woman. <laughs> I, I met a girl off True Poker and had sex with her. I really did. You know, that gimmicky stuff in hindsight, wearing hindsight goggles seems pretty cool, but that really just wouldn't fly today. That's No, and that's what much. killed True Poker. They were actually the number two poker room at the time online, but uh, they just would not speed the games up. They wouldn't let people multi-table. They, they were so obsessed with providing, quote, the true poker experience, like an experience that's so similar to live, not realizing that people are playing online poker because they don't want it to be the same as live. They hate live poker. They, they, want, they want to get away from that. So, uh, anyway, um, and someone was saying uh, Pacific Poker was the worst software ever, but man, the fish were on that site. The fish on that site almost made it worth playing. Well, more than almost. It, there really were a lot of fish on Pacific, which is now 888.com. But back in the day, a long time ago, Pacific really did have some horrendous players, and I, I did play on there somewhat. Uh, I remember they had like a cash out limit, which was kind of stupid. Anyway, uh, so that's the story with Nevada. And uh, New Jersey, which is going to be uh, legalized soon. I really hope it means something. And, and this is the first development since, really since the UIGEA in 2006 that I'm excited at all about in what it means for future online poker. Because all these other bills that were introduced that were supposedly going to make online poker legal, I just always had so much doubt that they were really going to go anywhere. And sure enough, they didn't. This one, I think, will go somewhere because it's uh, much less ambitious. It's not a federal legalization bill. It's Nevada legalizing it. It's done. It's been signed by the governor. And now, uh, as long as the federal government does not challenge the interstate cooperation, we will have uh, kind of pseudo-federal online poker. It'll take a while to set up. It'll have a lot of bugs at the beginning. It'll have a lot lot of customer service fails at the beginning. There's going to be a lot of different problems with it. It's not going to just come up and run smoothly. But I hope they appoint competent people to run it. And uh, In fact, I'd be happy to be one of those competent people running it. I could, do, I could do a great job in that role. I don't know if anyone would hire me, but uh, I really could do a great job in that role. I'm not kidding. You know, one thing I'm, I'm really curious about with uh, regulated poker in the United States, whether it's just statewide or they eventually adopt uh, federal online poker, is if they're going to stick to the traditional business model that other online poker websites have had with like affiliates and stuff like that. Do you think there's going to be a juicy affiliate market or incentives like that to sign people up? You know, that's an interesting point. I've talked about it before. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show. I know I've discussed this with people privately. Uh, in fact, you know, I don't like talking about my time on Donk Down very much anymore, but uh, one thing that I used to discuss with MyCon was what is the future of our site? Like, you know, we weren't making much money there just as poker fraud alerts making no money. And that's because the affiliate thing was kind of dead by then. Uh, and, and so Mikeon said, well, what about when online poker gets legalized? And I said, I don't know. I, I don't know when they legalize online poker, if they will be running the same sort of model where people click on a banner and get rake back and I get a percentage of their rake back. And that's how I make my money. Like, I don't know if, that model is still going to exist for the legalized sites as they did for the illegal sites. So I don't know. I think it's not a good model, actually. I think that uh, I think there's no need for it. I, I think that, um, but but they might do it. I don't think they're going to give rake back. I have a feeling rake back is done. But who knows? Maybe they'll do it. But I, yeah. I, do you do you know how rake back started? It, it didn't start. No, the way I, people I don't. Think. It did not start the way people think. 
a long time ago, when the whole affiliate model was created, I think it was Party Poker that really pushed the affiliate thing. They may have even been the ones who invented it. Um, they were contacting you know, people who could advertise for them. And they were saying, look, here's your incentive to push our room. Here's your incentive to get people on our site playing. Whatever they rake, you'll get some percentage of. 25%, 30%, whatever. So can you imagine if you got the full rake back for the players and they got none? That's how it was at first. Like you, You'd see some guy saying, hey, uh, play on Party Poker, click this link, and I'll give you $50. So you click that link. He gives you 50 bucks. You're all excited about it. Well, what you don't know is that he's getting all your rake back because there was no rake back then. The rake back went to the affiliate. 100% of it went to the affiliate. So the model was the poker site would keep like 70%, the affiliate would get like 30%, and the affiliates made huge money, as you might imagine. Yeah. Well, then someone came up with an idea. Said, wait a minute. There's so many different people doing this now. There's so much competition, all these different affiliate links everywhere. Why don't I promise my players that I'm going to give them back some of the commission I'm getting? And this is Wait, not a, a new... This was I, an affiliate that had this idea? Or yes, a yes. I don't know which one, but this is you know, affiliates started having this idea that they'll just give back some of the money they get that Party Poker pays them for being an affiliate. They'll just uh, be returning some of the rake back they get to the players. That so, seems like a really stupid idea. Well, that was the way they stood out. And then you know, the competition, of course, uh, they all try to one-up each other, and then pretty much it goes from receiving like 30% of their players' uh, rake back to receiving like 3% of their players rake back and they're giving 27 to, to the players themselves. So, uh, you know, because they, they, you know, it starts off with I'll give you uh, 5% of your rake back and I'll give you 10 Well, okay, I'll, I'll give you 10%. Well, yeah, yeah well, I'll give you 15%. And then, you know, so it goes up to where they have a very small margin, but if they sign up enough players, they still make a lot of money. So that's how it evolved. And then uh, finally the sites just started incorporating rake back directly and paying the players directly and then just giving the affiliate uh, um, a different percentage. That of course yeah, my, my understanding is that PokerStars never had a rakeback deal. Um, for their affiliates, they would just pay them uh, a straight amount for every player they signed up. Yeah, that's that's what's called the uh, the CPA model, where they just uh, they're just paying yeah for per players that actually play real money. Like once they start playing real money, they get something. And uh, then there's the MGR, which is the uh, which is based on rake. So uh, and Poker Stars, um, I, I think they did have an MGR model. I'm not 100 percent sure, but they the players never got it. The Poker Stars never gave their players direct rate back. They did that through the FPPs, and that was not. And unlike Poker Stars, was the only room where you didn't have to sign up with an affiliate to get the rate back, which was always really annoying. Like if you sign up for a room without rate back because you don't know, and then someone tells you about it, and like on day two, you're like, uh, hey, hey, uh, full tilt. I, I signed up just by going to fulltilt.com, like you told me to do on your commercial. But everyone else at my table is getting 27% rake back. Can I have it too? And they say, no. You had to sign up through an affiliate. Like, they punish people who've signed up through their site. That seems really counterproductive. People yeah. will just say, fine, I'll just go play on this other site where I do have rake back. Yeah. You've taken away incentive for me to play at your site. I mean, Absolute Poker did this to me. I signed up directly through AbsolutePoker.com, and then I realized about rake back. And I said, hey, give me rake back, and they, they gave me the middle finger. So I signed up on one of their skins. They actually had skins at the time. And so I started playing on the skins, and then then they actually took me back and gave me rake back, uh, you know, to get me off that skin because I was an active player. But anyway. another reason that's totally stupid is because the whole point of offering rake back to players was for affiliates, and affiliates are supposed to attract players to come play through the room. 
So when they refuse to give you rate back for signing up directly, they're saying, oh, just go go find an affiliate and sign up through them. Yeah. But then the affiliate didn't really do his job, did he? The affiliate no, he didn't, didn't attract you. Right. That's <laughs> so crazy. And then and then the funny thing is Rakeback also evolved over the years to where it was a way for grinders to support themselves even if they broke even. And uh, and like so rooms kind of felt obligated to give it. And and the truth was the rake was too high in the first place. The rake was just they based the rake upon the model of live poker. But live poker is so much more expensive to run for the business. Online poker you can just run like unlimited tables pretty much. And there's no additional expense. You have to, you know, build more uh, uh, brick and mortar rooms. You don't have to uh, hire dealers and floor men. You, you know, they they all pretty much run themselves. So that's why the rake for online should have been much much lower than it was. But uh, you know, people that always were... that always really confused me because I played online poker before I ever played live poker. So you know, the factors of hi- having to hire dealers and uh, you know rent for a room and things like that never really occurred to me. So I always thought it was really strange that some people have to pay like tens of thousands of dollars a year just for the luxury of playing on the site. You know, it just seemed way too expensive. Why why should I why should people have to pay so much money just to use your poker room? Yeah. And you know, I can't fault the poker rooms for trying to make as much money as they can. They're a business, but uh, I th- that's the, the reason the rake was so high was based upon what live rooms charge and they're just two totally different things, but they just they got away with it because people were so used to paying that rake in live rooms. So, uh, anyway. And that's another thing I've, I've been worried about as far as uh, federal legislation goes is if it ever happens and online poker gets regulated, we can all play online in the United States. Are they going to treat this like the lotto where the rake is just so high it makes no sense to play or it's impossible to uh, to play profitably, but idiots will still sign up and play it just because they like gambling? I'm hoping not, but yes, that's possible. It is possible that they're going to... Overrake the rooms, and I hope that uh, I hope they don't, but they might. And I, I have a feeling the rake will at least be as high as it was before, but I just hope it won't be higher. But uh, we'll have to see. They haven't they haven't established the framework for any of this stuff yet. They, I, I think they all have no idea what they're going to do. But, yeah, <laughs> I hope that they bring in good consultants, people that have worked in online gaming before and kind of know what they're doing. Yeah, they need to bring but, people who worked and also people who've played. Like they they really need people who have experienced playing from that side of things. People to, like you. Yes, to go through it and, and, and say, you know, this sucks, this is good, here's some ideas for you. Because it, it was amazing, like, whenever Bodog or Bovada would run out, like, new versions, it would have so many fail things about it. You know, both bugs and just new features that were terrible, that, that nobody would ever want if they actually played online poker regularly. But the problem was, these were developed by people who don't play, who just think, oh, this would be a cool feature, and they don't realize it would suck for actually playing. And so, so it was amazing reading the threads on Two Plus Two, where people would say, "No, don't do this. Do this instead." And these would be great suggestions. There would be so many people out there where, if, like, they just consulted with them. Uh, it could have been so much better, but they they never seemed to want the players' input. I don't understand it. If I was running an online poker room, I, I would definitely get some of the uh, regular players and have them test it, and pay them to test it, and pay them for their ideas, and uh, and you run it, you'd end up with a great room. So. I, I, have, I have faith in, like, the casinos and resorts and not screwing this up too much, you know, probably having the foresight to bring in knowledgeable people and do this somewhat correctly. But uh, I kind of don't have much faith in the government. And if the government, you know, decides to, to say, well, we expect this to bring in this much taxable revenue, you know, if they start, uh, if they start having some input on how much the sites get raked and things like that, this could be... 
kind of a disaster. I worry about that. Well, I don't even have faith in the, in the casinos, to be honest. Like, I've spent so much time at Caesars recently, and uh, let me tell you, that company makes so many stupid decisions and, and operationally screws things up every day. Uh, it, it's actually laughable. Uh, I was actually... Uh, That's a fair point. I, I, I always wonder how it's even possible that some of these some of these casinos end up in the red on some years. <laughs> how do you fail at, at profiting from a casino? It yeah. seems should be nearly impossible. That's what I would think too. But I, like I, I'm in uh, Caesar so often and like, I was just there this past weekend and uh, there was a fail occurring. I won't be, I won't bother to go into what it was, but uh, two of the three cashiers that were working were gone looking for supervisors. One for me, one for the guy next to me over two totally different matters. And so like this big line is forming because two of the three cashiers are gone and everyone's getting frustrated. Not with us, but like at Caesars. And uh, so this this the other guy whose cashier also disappeared was this old Southern guy, and he's going, "Yep, that's Harris for you." And I said, "Yeah." Every time I come here, there's some kind of problem. He says, "Yep, I've been coming here since '78. You know, they they call it Caesars now, but it's still Harris. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig." <laughs> <laughs> And then I think everyone in line is laughing because everyone knows it's true. Like everyone knows that that Caesar's fails. Like it's just uh, it, it's just a given. If you've been there a number of times, you just know that they screw everything up, even small things. I, I said to Brandon this week, I, I sent him a text and I said, you know, referring to Caesar's, we we both had different issues this week over there. And I said, uh, I said this is Caesar's, uh, a company that excels in finding ways to fail. And they do. That, that's exactly what they do. They excel in finding ways to fail. They find ways to fail in ways that you could never think of on your own. If I if I had you write a fictitious story about all the different ways a casino can fail doing things operationally, you would never come up with as many real fail things as Caesars has. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like trying to idiot proof an invention. Uh, you you can't. It's uh, they'll always build a bigger idiot or a stronger <laughs> idiot, a better idiot. I mean, I cannot tell you how many things they, how many simple things they screw up. It's amazing. You you just cannot, you can't spend like a few days there without noticing several things. So uh, anyway, moving to, on to in our agenda, I want to talk a little bit about the ladies' event. Then maybe I'll uh, have Scott Bell on after that. The ladies' event. We talked about it last week. The nine thousand dollar penis penalty. If you have a penis, actually, I shouldn't say that because I think trannies are probably exempted. I, ne- I, I was going to, I was going to ask you about that. It's, it's a, uh, how's that going to work? I think it's going to work where if you're a legal woman, whether you're born that way or not, you can play. And if you're not, like, so I can't just dress up in drag and say, "Okay, I'm a woman now." Like, unless I went through the legal motions to change myself to female. Uh, I, I, bl- I think that's the way they're going to do it. So this way, they're not discriminating against trannies, but at the same time, not uh, Todd. Please, transgendered. Not letting dudes dress up as women just to uh, you know play for a thousand dollars. So because they're just going to check your driver's license, basically. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. If it says male, then you you have to pay nine thousand dollars extra. So, um, the question I wondered about was how are they handling the rake with that? Uh, the way it works in these $1,000 events is Caesars takes 10% out of the prize pool. So 10% gets taken from the $1,000 buy-in for the women. But what about the men? They're paying 10000 Well, I would think the fair thing to do would be to take the same $100 out because it's the same tournament. There's the same amount of work required. There, there's nothing different here. It, they're going to win the same prizes. Everything's the same except the buy-in is more just to penalize the men for playing. But what does Harris do? 
sorry, what does Caesars do? I guess I can call it either one. You can put lipstick on a pig. But what what do they do? They're actually raking fully the ten thousand dollars to where they are only putting nine thousand in the prize pool. And what's oh, this I, heard, I heard they weren't even doing that. I heard they were just pocketing the extra nine thousand. No, I got this clarification here. This is from Seth Polanski. The clarification. Uh, let me read it to you. <laughs> Oops, that, no, that's not it. <laughs> Never gets old. Dear media members, this was sent by Seth Polanski on February twentieth. Thank you for your great coverage of the World Series of Poker schedule announcement last week. There was one area where we received a fair amount of inquiry into, and that was the ladies' event. So I thought I would help clarify the World Series of Poker ladies' event structure sheet slash starting chips. All entrants in the ladies' event will begin with 3,000 in tournament chips. Ladies entering will get the discounted rate of 1,000 as their buy-in, with 900 going straight to the prize pool. Men entering the event will pay the $10,000 entry fee, of which $9,000 goes directly into the prize pool. So they are raking that 10%. Now, what's really dumb about that is the fact that... uh, a $10,000 buy-in event does not have a 10, 10% rake. The main event, for example, has a 6% rake. At least it did last year. So 9400 would go in the prize pool. 600 would be held by Caesars at a 10000 This This isn't just the main event. This was any $10,000 event. So how are they even justifying, even if they want to say it's a $10,000 event for the men and a $1,000 event for the women, how are they justifying that in this case... They're raking a 10% for the $10,000 event. The truth is they shouldn't rake any more than 100 from anyone. But I think I think it's really greedy, and I think who this really slaps in the face are the women. Because the women have to tolerate having men in the field with them. They're the ones who have to deal with all the, the hoopla and the unpleasantry and the fact that they're stuck playing with men when they didn't want to and all that. You would think, you would think they're at least doing this for the women, that if any dudes want to put that much extra money to play, that at least the women can say, well, we hate having this douchebag playing with us, but at least he is contributing 9000 more into the prize pool. But he's not. He's contributing 8100 more to the prize pool and 900 more to Caesars. Caesars just should not be raking this an extra 10%. I think they probably realize that not too many people are going to question this or cause a fuss about it. Because probably no men are going to enter with this rule. I can't imagine even one will. Yeah, I, I so have to wonder. It might not even matter. It probably won't. There probably won't be anyone. Uh, Brandon and I were discussing this, actually, and uh, we think there's, like, uh, probably not going to be any more than one that enter, and, and there's a very good chance it'll be zero. So, Well, hypothetically, suppose that a bunch of men entered to where... It got to a point where it looked like half the field's going to be women and half the field's going to be men. <laughs> At some point, you have to ask yourself, how good do I think my ROI is in this tournament? Is it over 200%? It might be worth, uh, well, actually, you know, I didn't take these advanced math courses. Maybe I'm far off here. But uh, I wonder if it could reach a point where it would actually be plus EV to go ahead and enter that event if the pool got juiced up enough. <laughs> it is true that if enough people entered... If if there enough men enter to dwarf the number of women, then um, I, I wouldn't. I don't think it would ever be plus EV, but uh, it it would definitely take down the fact that this is a penalty, because there'd be so many others paying what you are. But uh, I doubt that's going to happen. So 
this is just another fail on the part of Caesars. It's just so nervy for them to do to rake ten percent out of the men's part because they're they're not punishing the men by doing that. They're just punishing the women. They're taking money that the women should be getting. So that's a joke. Just wanted to comment on that. Maybe they'll change it, but uh, I have a feeling they're not, and I have a feeling there's not going to be a lot of uh, objection to this because uh, it's probably not expected that many men are entering, and I, I bet a lot of people won't be thinking of it this way either. So, Jake Stats in the chat mentioning that uh, the $111,000 event is taking a 10% break, but that's, that is this year's one drop, and I believe they did the same thing last year. Yeah. Break 10%. So that's kind of an exception. Yeah, that, that's an exception because it's for charity. And and not a charity that Jacep's going to handle the money. They, they should hire Jacep actually to to submit the one drop money. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to mention earlier when you're talking about Harris <laughs> constantly failing in so many unique ways that uh, it's kind of a common thing in the business world called the Peter Principle, where people sort of rise to their level of incompetence. And in the spirit of that, he seems like the man for the job. <laughs> they should just have everybody just give a hundred eleven thousand dollars cash directly to Jacep. Just like send it to him on PayPal or just, just hand him the chips or hand him the cash and just have him register for you. That, that would be the best way to handle that, I think. And yeah. then and then uh, have all that be right before he has a trip scheduled to the Borgata. That would be uh, my recommendation for who they hire to uh, to take those buy-ins. Todd, this is a sensitive subject. You really you shouldn't joke about that. <laughs> Please. Well, since it's such a sensitive subject, let's talk about it. What's going on with Jason? What's going on here? Is he in jail yet? No. Jacep is currently under investigation by the Rhode Island State Police. There is a detective, a female detective, who is the lead detective in this case. And uh, unlike what you see on TV, where the detectives uh, show up at 7 in the morning and work until 3 a.m. and then sleep four hours in their chair in order to solve the case of the week. That's not how it works in real life, especially not in with situations like these. So, in more minor cases, you're expected to do as much work as possible on your own if you ever want to see anything done to the people who have committed crimes against you. Especially financial sorts of crimes where you really need to do uh, a lot of digging. So, uh, the one who has taken this on his shoulders is the co-host of this show who has uh, not appeared on the show very much in 2013, but he's been working hard behind the scenes to put together a case against Jacep. This really affected him so much. This really, really bothered him. And he told me again when I saw him on Sunday night how much this bothers him. And that's why he's gone away from radios. He said he just doesn't feel in the mood to come on here and joke around and all that with, with this happening. So... He has put together a 100-page report. I'm not kidding. A, an actual 100-page report containing emails and, and other direct evidence to prove that JSIP really did scam both the 22Q Foundation and uh, poker players in this community. And he's going to be... or not going to be. He told me that today he was sending this 100-page report to the lead detective in Rhode Island and that this detective is very interested to read the whole thing and to get going with a real criminal investigation that is hopefully going to result in an arrest and conviction. So we'll have to keep our fingers crossed about that. Obviously there's a long way to go, but this is actually happening. I know Jacob is listening here, even though he has no internet anymore. 
sure he's listening. And Jason, if I'm telling you the truth, I, I wouldn't be claiming there's a police investigation when there's not one. There really is. There really is a 100-page report, and there really is a lead detective at uh, Rhode Island State Police who will be investigating this. And Jason will make an offer for you. If you want to contact me, I will give you the name and phone number of this detective, and you can call and talk to her yourself. And this way you'll know that there really is a serious investigation against you over what you did, stealing from everyone in this community and from the charity. So uh, it is really happening, and uh, long way to go. Um, Sandwich is asking via fax, LOL, really? I know it's kind of funny. I know it kind of seems like, you know, 1991. But, uh, you know, that's that's what the way they wanted it. They didn't want it via email. They wanted it by fax for some reason. So that's what uh, he'll be doing. Uh, unrelated, A Brown 83 asked in the chat, have I stayed at Nobu? No, I have not stayed at Nobu. As far as I know, seven stars at Caesars cannot stay at Nobu for free. What's Nobu? Nobu is a boutique hotel that's affiliated with a Nobu restaurant, which also is now in Caesars. And that is like, it's a hotel within a hotel. But right now it is not free as far as I know to seven stars. And since I can stay in Caesars for free, I can't bring myself to stay in Nobu and pay money. Though I did eat at Nobu with Brandon and the other three people who were at this meal were the famous Steve the Bodyguard and my girlfriend and Benjamin. So Brandon got to meet Benjamin for the first time on Sunday night. And I'm actually going to post a receipt from that meal later on the Flying Stupidity Forum that I think some of you will find to be interesting. If I didn't lose it, I may have lost it. But if I, if I, if I lost it, I'll describe the receipt. But I hope I can post it because it's a funny receipt. But Benjamin did eat at Nobu, as did... Um, he's also eaten at Twist, which is a uh, an expensive restaurant in the Mandarin Oriental that's owned by Pierre Gagnier, who's a three-star Michelin chef from uh, from France. From France. But uh, anyway... Uh, I, I raised the question in the Jason thread that didn't get answered, and I don't know if you know, but I'm really curious, when was the last time anyone was in communication with Jason? I understand that even halfway into that monstrous thread, uh, he was still responding to emails somewhat and occasionally texts. Has he gone completely dark now, or has anyone heard from him recently? As far as I know, he's gone dark. Um, the only people he was communicating with, I believe, were the only person after the initial round of bullshit about, hey, I'll pay you by February 6th, whatever crap he said, um, was this guy, Tim, who uh, was his lifelong friend. and uh, then Pikachu, right? I don't think he talked very much with Pikachu. Okay. Maybe a little bit more than. No, I thought I thought Tim was Pikachu. No, no, Tim is is uh, not on the site as far as I know. Okay. And uh, he's he's like a he's older than Jacep, but he knew Jacep since he was three. Oh wait, 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 John, John is Pikachu. I'm getting mixed up here. Yeah. So uh, I, I know he talked some to Tim, and I know it was Tim he communicated with to say, "Sorry, um, I won't be able to come up with the money for everybody." Is that at one point, Jacep was saying that he might be able to get his father to give him the money to pay everyone back. But then he, he told Tim, no, I don't have that money. My father can't give it to me. Sorry, can't pay. That was the last, as far as I know, that everybody heard from him. But maybe When he, was that exactly? Like, uh, weeks a few, ago? A, a few weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while, as far as I know. 
But uh, Brandon would be the expert on this. He's been the one like diligently researching everything. Have you observed him logging into Poker Fraud Alert at all? No, but I I don't think he does because he knows I check for these things. So I think he's just not doing it. I'm sure he's lurking. I'm sure he's listening right now. But, uh, and so, you know, China Maniac said in the chat, he's probably into his dad for 50K already. I'm sure he's into every family member for the max he could squeeze out of all of them. I think that uh, scamming people was the next thing he went to after his family cut him off. So... I believe he really has nobody at this point that will give him money unless he scams them. So that's that's where I think he is. So as far as getting any restitution from him, uh, I don't know how much we're going to get because he probably can't get a very good job at this point. And I don't think any family members are going to give him money. I, I think I think restitution, unless it's court-ordered and, and closely supervised, may not happen, or if it does happen, it'll take a long time. But at the very least... Uh, it would be nice to see him pay with some jail time and uh, a revocation of his existing probation for identity theft over this matter. So, Even if you get a judgment against him uh, from the courts, it still seems very unlikely. Well, yeah, because to, to you, can't, so. you can't squeeze money out of his thumb. If he doesn't have the money, he simply doesn't have the money, and you know he may never will. Yeah, that, I mean, that would be... Uh, you, you, you'd be like squeezing blood from a stone. If you win a lawsuit against him, someone asks, like, why not sue Jason? Because, because you wouldn't be able to collect from him. He has no money. Uh, to collect people, to collect money from people from lawsuits, a lot of people think it's just automatic that you just win a judgment and all of a sudden they just uh, automatically money just drifts into your bank account. It doesn't work that way. You have to collect. It's a separate process for collection. And if the person does not own a home, and if the person does not have a job, or and the person does not have a bank account that you know about, when I say know about, I don't just mean like you know he has one. You have to figure out where he has the bank account. Where his home branch is, so it's like a, it's a tough process to collect money. And uh, you need uh, an account number too. You need an account number. That, you know, you you need their home branch at least. You don't necessarily need their account number, but you need you need to know that they have an account. You need to know their home branch. You can't. Uh, just I, was, go... I researched this for my own purposes uh, for another uh, dispute that I have, oh. and I thought I thought you had to get an account number. Maybe in Nevada you do. I knew in California you needed the home branch, and you needed the uh, um, you know the fact that they had an account there. But uh, anyway, it's uh, it's tough. Or maybe you do need the account number. You know what? I'm forgetting about that. I don't know if the banks can cooperate with that. I know that uh, when I go to the bank and I never have my account number on me, I just ask them, what's my account number? But I usually have to show my ID. Yeah, you show ID. Yeah. That. No, there, there's so tricks to get people's account think... numbers, but I'm, I'm forgetting whether or not you actually need the account number. But I know for sure, at least in California, you need to know the bank and the home branch, which is... A lot of times, tough. You can have the account number and still not know the home branch. So it's tough. So if, if a guy is like Jacek with no job, no bank account you know of, and if he does have a bank account, it's probably at zero. And if he owns no house, which is clear, uh, it's very hard to get to collect from people. So, uh, and by the way, the Tim we were talking about is Tim Bird, by the way. So, as somebody noted in the chat, uh, you know, money won't drift magically out of thin air. But PayPal will cover it if you file the claim in time. Some people have been getting their money from PayPal. And PayPal is basically footing the bill. Yeah. And now turning around to Jason and saying, okay, your account is negative this much dollars. Yeah. Actually, I just uh, I actually called up PayPal just out of curiosity and uh, pretended to be Jason and asked, what is my current balance of my account? And here's the recording of what they told me. One million dollars. Negative. That also never gets old. 
So yeah, it, so I, um, yeah, PayPal has been giving people some money back. I believe Rolo Tomasi won a dispute, and again, this is coming out of PayPal's money. But don't feel bad for PayPal because they just collect outrageous fees for everything they do. They also rolled people. They and do freeze roll. accounts for stupid reasons. Right. They they rolled me back in '01, freezing my account for a stupid reason, and a really really stupid reason. So yes, they do roll people. So don't feel bad if you can get the money out of PayPal, do it. And, and of course, you're not cheating them; they're giving it to you. You're being honest. You know, I was, you know, this guy was a scammer. I sent him money. It was a scam. Give me money back. And if they say yes, okay, they're they're agreeing to it's <laughs> it's their money, and they're they're willing to hand it to you for this reason that you're being honest about. So nothing to feel bad about. But uh, you should dispute it, and uh, even if it's past the 45-day period, in fact, I'm going to try to start a dispute for the money I sent to JSIP in uh, like September and October. For, on behalf of other people for 22Q And of course if I get it back I won't keep it myself I'll give it back to the people it got taken from So uh, I'm going to try to get as, Whatever I can But they, they may tell me forget it It's been 4 or 5 months But but if it's more than 45 days you can try Just to, just the advice that was given In the thread was to be really persistent If they say no keep saying come on It was a scam Come on he told me to say send it as a gift To avoid fees I, I didn't understand what that was I just did it I followed his instructions he scammed me just because it took me a few months to figure out it was a scam. You know, it, you know, can you please cover it? Keep trying, and you you might get it. And uh, I think Rolo Tomasi, um, he hasn't gotten his money yet, but they agreed to give it to him. So, um, we'll see if it shows up, but it should. If they said they're going to give it to him, I, I think he'll be getting it. And uh, I think his was over the forty-five day period. You can say in the chat if it was or not. So, um. Let's let's move on to a, a different subject, and uh, that would be the interview tonight with Scott Bell, also known as Eleven Grover. Now, what we had was after uh, the UB scandal, we had various journalists kind of appear and uh, really take it upon themselves to do a lot of good and accurate and uh, really deep research into UB. It was amazing the stuff they came up with. Uh, the two most prominent ones who did this were Haley Hintz, and she still does it to this day, and Scott Bell, who also still does it to this day. Now, unfortunately, the two of them don't like each other at all, and I'm not going to be getting into that tonight. I, I, I like both of them, actually, and I, I don't want to have this show used for them to fight with each other. So that's never going to happen here. And I'm when I have Scott on here, I'm not even going to talk about Haley. But... Um, Scott is, uh, he's, he's known as a guy who's pretty aggressive with uh, trying to get the information he wants. He's putting together a documentary about UB and, uh, and the whole thing that happened, including other names you may not have heard of will be, will be in this documentary that uh, he believes were involved with either cheating or facilitating the cheating or covering up the cheating or helping cash out. So... Um, we're going to have him on here. He's going to talk about his documentary, which, again, I participated in. And uh, here's a, a trailer for the documentary. The documentary is called Ultimate Beat. So this trailer is three minutes long. So if you don't have an interest here, this is a good time to go to the bathroom. As the dot-com bubble burst, entrepreneurs and poker hustlers helped to drive a new boom in online poker. The game took flight with a World Series champion, 
but they had larger goals. Why would they be cheating when they're making so much money in rank? That was Brad Booth, by the way. You see a player playing 60-70% of your hands and you just have to hop in that game. Patrick Antonius had lost $500,000 and he looked over me and said, Brad, I am never playing on that site again. A labyrinth of corporate entities drove a large valuation before the coming storm. The president signed the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act on Friday, a piece of legislation Congress quietly attached to a bill on port security. In a shifting legal environment, players learned they had been cheated. And we all just started pooling our information together and looking at these accounts and saying there's something not right about this. The chance of this being legitimate was about one followed by 32 zeros. So that was uh, Michael Josem, who you may remember, who appeared next to me in the 60 Minutes special, the Australian guy. Uh, one in... I don't even know the word for that number that's so big. And that it looked like to us that the Sultan of that cheating scandal was going to be quite big. Do you recognize that voice? No. That's Mason Malmuth. Mason Malmuth and, and myself are in the same documentary. Can you believe that? Nice. Did you shake his hand? Uh, we weren't there at the same time. But uh, oh. you could kind of think we were shaking hands by the fact that we appear very closely together in this uh, teaser. Well, hold on. I hear that Mason plays a lot at the Bellagio in the high limit games. Do you ever uh, you ever sit at the table and play he with him? He plays at the medium limit games. Uh, he never plays higher than 30-60 limit or like 5-10 no limit. I actually have been at his table once in a while, but we just ignore each other. And he, he always takes a lot of pills. I don't think it's legal pills, but it takes like, like 50 vitamins at once. I'm sure they're vitamins, yeah. Yeah actually started releasing statements, they, they kept just regurgitating the information we kept putting out. Players identified issues allowing Ultimate Bet to refund less. Now this was uh, in this uh, documentary, it says, Limit Hold'em tournaments and non-standard games generated little or no refunds. Exactly. I got $2,000 back from UB, and I was definitely cheated for way more than $2,000. I played 300 600 on there a lot. There's no way I only got cheated out of 2000 I'm sure a lot of the money that was put back in these accounts was never claimed. Uh, who's that? I I don't know, man. Who is that? Todd Dandruff would tell us poker professional slash founder poker fraud alert. That's what it says on the screen. Nice. And then if it's in their terms of service that after six months they can take the money back, confiscate it or whatever they do, uh, I'm sure that was not an accident. $24,000 roughly. Uh, refund on that account that was processed in the initial refund, but because the account was closed, you could not. Many stories. So what, that was uh, Paul Leggett, the CEO of UB, who was saying uh, that uh, they they basically kept twenty four thousand that was supposed to go to an account that got refunded because the account was closed. So the person. Hey, Jeff, why doesn't your caption say "bracelet winner"? It should. I'm going to complain. I'm going to yeah. complain when we have Scott Bill on here. Stories of people that claim to have lost six, seven figures on ultimate bet uh, during the cheating time frame and gotten no refund back. What's the minimum they could get away with giving back to the players? Pay out the largest amounts to the biggest name players or the people most involved with this investigation on 2 plus 2. The fact that we even asked the question of were players properly refunded 
shows that there needs to be a complete and proper independent investigation. Phil Helmuth is one of the game's highest profile players, and he helped found IE Logic, the parent company behind Ultimate Bet. I think that that's a very good question there as to, to exactly how, how much ownership he had and how much he knew of the going on, and, and I don't think those questions have been answered. Players have trust in people like Phil Helmuth and Annie Duke, and that trust meant that they lost their money. And I think Annie Duke and Phil Helmuth have a lot to answer to. One founder, Russ Hamilton, did his portion. Are you in any way associated with the ultimatebet.net super user cheating scandal? Carrying blame for the whole team in a complex and evolving case. The film reveals a large group enabling, assisting, or otherwise failing to prevent customers from being looted. Dun dun. Ultimate Beat. Coming soon to a theater near you. I didn't know that uh, Helmy helped found the parent company. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I saw that. You know, this is kind of an aside, but I remember a long time ago, I saw this weird hand history where Helmuth was playing in some kind of game, and he lost the hand, but the pot went to him anyway. Yeah. And his opponent freaked out about it, and Helmuth was telling him to calm down. It's This is internet poker. Stuff like that happens all the time. Yeah. And the, the, it, was there ever any resolution to that? Did anybody has anyone ever even asked him about that? I'm really no, curious. Well, no, he's just gonna say the same thing. Like it was a bug. You know, the guy got his money back. You know, who cares? I want I want to see like ESPN ask him that in an interview one day. Yeah. So uh, that's that's the teaser to Ultimate Beat, which is the documentary being made by Scott Bell. As you heard, uh, you can see both myself and Mason Malmuth in it, along with uh, various others that. Uh, had to do with the investigation of the UB scandal. Um, one of the voices that kept being heard on there was Trambo Poline, who was actually mentioned in the Travis McCarr tapes as one of the victims. They were saying he got taken for 177k in those tapes. So I'm going to call up uh, Scott Bell now, and uh, we'll hear from him about this documentary, when we can expect it. It was supposed to be out already, but there's been some delay. We'll find out why that is. We'll find out what we can expect in this documentary, what they're doing right now with it, and uh, what he thinks of the Travis McCarr tapes that have been released and the emails and the other things he's been releasing publicly now in 2013 after two years of silence. I think that may have something to do with why the documentary stalled. Greetings. Hello, Scott Bell. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert. Uh, this is Scott Bell, also known as Eleven Grover on uh, this site and on 2 Plus 2 and elsewhere. So welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I think this is your first time on the show, isn't it? Uh, I think it is, yeah. yeah. Actually, I think this is probably... Yeah, this is the first time. Yeah, okay. So welcome to the show. And I know that uh, you know to some people you're a, a polarizing figure in the, uh, in the world of uh, UB investigations, but... Uh, I've never had a problem with you, and I think that everybody who's trying to uh, lift the sheet off of uh, the entire situation and expose those who were involved with the cheating, whether uh, directly cheating or facilitating it, I I think anybody who does that deserves commendation. And uh, I wish everybody would get along, but I know that's just easier said than done as as someone who has plenty of people who doesn't get along with me. So... uh, Anyway, why don't you tell us some about uh, this documentary? When can we expect to see it, and um, what is going to be in it? I, I played the trailer. I'm not sure if you heard that, but uh, what, what sure, can people really sure. respect? What can they expect if they watch this documentary? How long will it be? 
and, and when can people expect to find it? Well, well first of all, the, the thing I'm very cognizant of is that when I'm editing the film down and stuff, I really do have to keep the drop and mason clips apart. I mean, they just they fight. I mean, they literally fight when they're on the timeline, and so there's a bit of a challenge there, and 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 I'm, I'm I recognize that. But, uh, <laughs> I think what folks are gonna, I I hope what to be able to present to folks here is a different story than really what I think has become sort of the common story. I think if you you know just grab the average guy on the street and said you know what was the UB scandal about. You probably get ten different opinions, and and I think really most of them would not know, really maybe even as much as ninety percent of what happened. I, you know, Sirius actually said something, which was interesting about Phil Hellmuth and something about Phil that a lot of people don't know. I mean, dude was cutting edge. I mean, in 1998, before anybody was really playing on Planet or you know when when really IRC poker was about the only thing that was out there. Him and a guy named David Porkchop White actually hired programmers and spent $60,000 to write a poker room. And they found out that they really didn't have the skill sets to set up a poker room. And up in there was David White actually left the business and started a, a company. And uh, Phil went on and got introduced to the two gentlemen up in Oregon and actually was a founding owner of getting that site off the ground. Yeah. So uh, I know he was he – was, uh involved way early there so um he really gets off pretty easily as far as you know if you think about what happened on ub and that he was the face of it and that he definitely owned part of it that uh, somehow he skated away without much damage at all to his reputation which is surprising it really is i mean you know along the way we were actually kind of told a little bit about how he gained his ownership and um, it wasn't a situation at the, at the time back in 98, 99, you can actually read his blogs and he was, he was in sort of financial straits at that point. I mean, he was having a rough couple of years and, um, but he still believed in this idea of starting an online poker. I mean, he really believed in technology, you know, Phil's a, he, he lives up in sort of Silicon Valley. He doesn't live in Vegas. So he has that, that thing. And, so, you know, he really gets started as as somebody really driving this online poker boom and then of course becomes the chief spokesman for UB all the way from start to close to finish. I mean, he he exits about 3 months before Black Friday if I recall correctly and uh and essentially he's just held his breath the longest. He's just essentially been able to say, you know, I don't really feel like talking about that. And I don't understand that. It's it's very difficult. I've had conversations with his agent, and you know we've tried to come to some accommodation. I've actually given him quite a bit more freedom and possibility than I would give other people. You know, appearing in the film, I've actually given him the ability to see questions in advance. I've given him the ability to uh, have not necessarily a final cut. The ability to you know make suggestions after the interview is over, but I, he just, you know, he just doesn't want to talk. Yeah, well, um, what do you think, this is from the chat from uh, from Jack Bates, actually, who I know you've been in some contact with, um, one of the original programmers on uh, UB. He said, in my opinion, Phil was fucked out of his possible payday. Well, and, you know, I think... Right there, you actually have a germ of really sort of why this thing kind of ended up the way it did because, you know, at the end of the day, 
whatever was stolen from players, whether it was $23 million or $40 million or whatever the number is, I think all of the people that really were behind this site, except for a, a couple, really can walk away saying that they lost in a lot of these ventures. I mean, they had a whole bunch of ventures that they built along the way, the, the, the corporate uh, ventures that they started, the, the different companies and, and things like that. And in almost every case, they just were fail sites in a lot of ways in your language because, you know, if you compare them to sort of the benchmark at the time, which was party, they just never really reached that standard. Yeah, they had a big IPO, but in the IPO, only a small handful of investors were able to make out because all of the other investors were under a one-year lockup when Frist and, and Bush you know, passed the UIPA. So it, it, it's been a situation where I think you have a lot of people that say, well, yeah, we che there was cheating going on under our regime and everything, but, you know, we got – screwed in this whole deal too so um in your video it's uh, how long do you think it's going to be yeah you know that's that's kind of a tough one because uh you know you don't really want to drag this thing out for a long time so i've really kind of set a, a top of two hours but i'm really shooting to you know get it somewhere down maybe between you know hour and a half hour 45 but i'll tell you right now just in the script the way it is there's eight thousand words and 8,000 words translates out to about 60 minutes of just narration. So that'll go over graphics and photos and stuff like that. And, you know, so then if that's the case, then, you know, we got about 35, 40 minutes worth of, of interview footage. So I got to trim the narration back and then, you know, try and do about half narration and half uh, interview work. But about hour 90 to maybe an hour 45, something like that. Okay. And, uh, how many people do you think are going to be mentioned um, as far as people who are in, in your video? How many people do you think are going to be mentioned by name who were involved with UB in some way that there's some sort of suspicion upon them for being complicit in some way or or, uh, or actually participating in the cheating? How many how many names do you think are going to come out in that in that video? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's such a good question because this whole case is if you're somebody who likes conspiracy theories i mean this is a legitimate conspiracy so you know there's just a lot of there's a lot of places here where you can insert people in and you know one of the reasons why i actually wanted to come on the show right now was because there's a lot going on right now for some weird reason and we're not really sure what that's about and and it started for us actually before Travis showed up about a month ago um, I received a big anonymous data dump, and I've kind of kept it quiet up until just very recently in the last week or so. And this data dump came from somewhere inside the company, and I assume just from the nature of what we got, it, it's sort of built to say, you know, look, the investigation, it wasn't as half-assed as you sort of portrayed it, and here's the refund list, and if you don't believe we paid all this money, maybe you should just call all these people, and, you know, kind of that's what we've been doing. So, it's been really good because we've really gotten a lot of new sort of insight into the case. It's been really challenging because there's a whole bunch of new names uh, of people that really have some difficult things to explain. I'll, I'll just throw a name out there that you haven't heard associated with the case at all. If he hears his name tonight or if somebody mentions his name to him and he calls me up and starts screaming at me, well, 
as you, I think, as you said before I came on, very aggressive. So, you know, he's just going to have to deal with it. Miami John Cernudo uh, has some really difficult-looking transfer stuff. And it just doesn't really, it doesn't add up. He's got a lot of big-time transfers from Russ Hamilton. He's a losing player online and some gigantic cash-outs. And, you know, that's a name that just was never even involved. I, I don't think I'd ever heard his name associated with a wow. case. So, uh, so, you, so you're talking about uh, this data dump you got. Uh, was it a list of uh, people who were getting refunds, or was it a list of people who uh, did a cash-outs that you can't really explain? So what, what we got was both of that. What we got was the entire UB refund list, and we've got a set of investigation docs. And it's maddening in some ways because we can't ask for more, right? We can't go back and say, okay, look at this entry. Can we get, you know, the, the, the information for this? Or we can't cross-check it, for instance. So, like, if I have a tab that says, you know, these are transfers from Russ Hamilton, and then I look down and I see somebody like uh, Tripaz2003, and I see he's got some big transfers from Russ Hamilton, I can't then go and look at his account and say, what did he do with the money that he got from Russ Hamilton? I can see that he withdrew quite a bit, but I can't see if, you know, he turned money around to other people and, and so forth. So there's things we can say about this data, but there's also things that we're not going to be able to say. So we're going to have to be kind of careful with it. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, Tripus 2003 or Tripus 2003. I saw him a lot on UB when I played there. He played a lot of Limit Hold'em. Um, he also played on Poker Stars, and he was one of the biggest whiners on the site. And uh, interestingly, uh, given his association with Russ Hamilton, he was one of the biggest complainers on Poker Stars about cheating. He insisted on Poker Stars that uh, Stickman who was one of the biggest Limit Hold'em winners on the site, that Stickman was a cheater, that Stickman was somehow cheating through PokerStars. This was never proven. It was probably just uh, unfounded accusations because Stickman was very good and won a ton of money there. But uh, Trepas always complained about Stickman. So who is Trepas, and uh, what does he have to do with Russ Hamilton, and how much money did he cash out for Russ? I saw him all the time on UB, I'll say that. Well, he kind of goes to that point you made a little bit earlier about, you know, who are the new names that are going to be named. And, and um, he kind of he fits a, a profile that several people and, and I guess really the person who might actually totally personify what I'm about to say would be Freddie Deeb. And we can talk about him in a minute. But uh, Tripaz uh, is somebody that shows up in transfer records. He shows up, you know, in a lot of different uh I guess the first place that we sort of were exposed to him was in the Fred transaction logs that Brainwash Dodo released on 2 plus 2 back in 2008. And so what we found out about the guy, well, we also got, in addition to this document, last year we got a copy of the UB database that was leaked out from that uh, guy who was just, I guess he was just an email scammer. So we're able to sort of cross-check back and find out who he is, and he's a guy named Jose Stosky. Uh, Goldwag is actually his last name, but he just goes by Jose Stosky, and I think he's just mostly goes by Joe. Um, he's somebody who I think lives down in Costa Rica most of the time, um, but he kind of shows up as somebody that's kind of interesting in the case because, truthfully, I don't 
think that he did actually know that Russ Hamilton was cheating uh, because he seems to be somebody that Hamilton used, you know, for money laundering, for money movement, for uh, transferring money around, for, you know, this thing. Remember, Mattisau would say that, you know, he'd get crushed by a name and then somebody, Russ or somebody else would tap him on the shoulder and say, we can get you some more money in your account. And, you know, then he'd dust a few more buy-ins and rinse and repeat. And, and this guy seems to be something along those lines. Um, but we have plenty of hands where Russ was cheating him. Yeah. So it, it, it was almost like the case. And I think we kind of, and when I say, understand when I say we, I'm not, I'm not saying the Royal, we, I'm actually, we have a small group of investigators and they're pretty much all anonymous. They don't want to be named. They don't want to be involved in the case. They don't want, you know, Russ showing up at their house next week, but we all sit around and talk about this stuff and come up with sort of theories. And then we just really rip them apart to see which ones can stand and which ones can't. And, you know, this one sort of seems like, you know, Russ would actually play guys and he would cheat the guys on his team, guys that were helping him out. He started to get a discount back because he didn't like what he was actually having to pay these guys to do the work for him. So, you know, if he was giving some guy 10% to offload money down into Central America to keep guys online and playing against him there, you know, maybe he only wanted to pay the guy 5%. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, uh, by the way, a question from the chat room for China Maniac. Do you have any hands from AP, any hand histories there? Um, you know, I actually don't have a lot of absolute poker hand history records. I do have an awful lot of ultimate bet hand history records. We we do have a lot of AP data. Um, I actually, this is going to be kind of, this is going to sound kind of weird, but I actually have a somewhat ongoing conversational relationship with Hilt Tatum. But, uh, oh, really? He's talking about Oscar Hilt Tatum, one of the AP owners. Yes. He's, he's an interesting guy. I mean, this is the only thing to say about it. But well, so what, what kind of relationship with, do you have with, with uh, Oscar Hilt Tatum? I, this, I reached out to him after I had some conversations in the interview process, and surprise, he was somebody who responded back. What everybody would like to see, or not everybody, but a lot of people would like to see, was uh, prior to the days of all the the cheating with Grey Cat and all those other uh, obvious cheaters on AP, uh, what, a year and a half before that was the infamous Mark Safe versus uh, Stuck and PGH match, where uh, it Stuck and PGH really felt, and so did a third party who was watching like from a, a different set of eyes, really felt that Mark Safe was cheating him. But um, no one could ever come up with those hand histories, and supposedly they were lost. And uh, if you can ever get any AP hand histories, if you could ever come up with that, I think that would uh, really blow a lid off something, especially as far as Mark Safe is concerned. Sure, sure. Well, let me let me let me just address the histories a little bit because I thought I thought Jack actually did a pretty good job of describing the raid array and the technology behind that. Um, the one thing that he actually mentioned, it was either last week or the week before, where he talked about uh, query logs not being saved. Um, you know, that, that part of it was certainly interesting from a speed perspective, but it seemed really hard to believe that they weren't doing any kind of incremental backups or they weren't doing any kind of full backups along the way that were, you know, living on optical media or tape or something like that. I mean, I think we all understand that they probably at least i mean even if they only did them on you know april 1st each year there has to be some kind of backup meeting 
media floating around that we're just not privy to. But there's an interesting story there in that there's a guy who, if you look at his resume, uh, his name's Andrew McKellar, and he was living up there, I think, in Montreal, and he was there pretty much on site at the server facility working for, you know, all of the target companies essentially pretty much from day one. So I think he kind of started out as almost a nobody and, you know, just kind of was the guy responsible for care and feeding of servers because he ended up, I think, finishing with Next Active Networks, which was the the Mohawk, you know, side of the, the fence up there. Um, he's kind of disappeared. He's moved down to Bermuda or somewhere. I, I had a brief conversation with him and he just acted really weird about saying he couldn't talk about, you know, backup tapes or backups or hand histories or servers or any of that kind of stuff. And he just was really weird. But then there was another conversation and actually there's a member of your forum that, that kind of got into it with me about this. And this is part of the aggressive thing as well. Uh, there's a guy named Craig Schultz who was a, an interesting character because back in the day with AP, what happened was when the whole thing shook down, the KGC actually came out with a recommendation that three guys had to get fired. And this wasn't public consumption. This was internally. And the three guys were Brent Beckley, a guy from Korea who uses an American sort of name, although his, his name is, you know, he's got a Korean name, and Craig Schultz. And what happened was, well, they obviously didn't fire Brent Beckley. The guy in Korea just changed his name and took another <laughs> different American name. <laughs> and, they, and they fired Craig Schultz. And the deal is, is that I finally got Craig Schultz to contact me back after trying for a long time. And he finally did. And he just sort of like dismissed me like I was a nut job. You know, it's like, you know, laughing like, oh, I knew I was going to get this kind of, you know, loopy kind of, you know, introduction or question or whatever. And, and I said, you know, I, I don't even have to put your name in this thing. I, all I really want to know is just some information about, you know, how did those AP tapes get lost? I mean, did they get lost in the move from, you know, six net over to the Kahnawake? Did they get lost sort of maybe purposely? I mean, what happened? And he just cut off all communication. And one of his friends, uh, actually ripped me up on the forum saying that, you know, for me to put him in the same category as Scott Tom was like unconscionable. And I'm like, well, I didn't, first of all, but I am kind of pissed at the dude because he's indicative of so many people in this case that just will not talk about it for whatever reason. And it's because of them that a lot of players are not getting their money back or they're not getting their full money back. Yeah. Now, um, is it true the AP software was developed in Korea? Because that's what Jack Bates is saying in the chat. So I talked to Link, the guy, the Korean guy who was supposed to get fired, and he actually was he was the head programmer. He, he actually um, provided me with quite a bit of information about the AP software. And one of the things that happened was, you know, there was this big struggle ultimately between the two companies when it all came down. Um, the merger just didn't take and ultimately absolute poker prevailed and stole the side away in 2010. But in 2007 and 2008, there was a giant struggle between Yuri Kokai, the ultimate bet guy and the Korean guys. And the Korean guys were just saying that they thought that the, they thought that the UB software after so many years was just a mess. 
Now, I don't know if that's really the case or not, but ultimately they just didn't want to move there and, and because they were all down in Costa Rica and, and really driving that sort of thing down there, they ultimately prevailed and the software got moved off the Oracle platform and uh, onto the uh, SQL Server platform that the Korean folks developed. Oh, and, uh, and Yuri Kozai, by the way, was um, would you agree that he is someone who's highly suspected of uh, um, covering up a lot of the uh, the hand history stuff for for UB and and other things like that? You, you know, so you said something earlier, and 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 I'm glad we're not going to get into it. I don't really hate anybody. Okay, I, 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 there's almost nobody in this case that I hate. But maybe Yuri Kozai would, would fit into that group. I, I know who Yuri was from way back because I actually used to buy and sell stock from a company that he came from called Sonic Solutions. And Sonic Solutions was a company that had the gold standard for DVD authoring software. And he was the lead developer on that software program for years. And so when Excapsa started, which was the company that they were going to take public to actually monetize Ultimate Bet, you know, they probably sat down and they thought about it and they said, well, here's Daniel Cunningham. And, you know, I mean, he's this young guy who comes up. He's got this little consulting company doing C++ programming. He writes this, you know, software site for online poker. And maybe that's not really the guy we want to have in the management suite, you know, because we want to really get a big IPO. So we want some seasoned executives. So, you know, seems like Yuri was a good face for that. I don't know if Yuri was originally hired because he was really going to be taking over the software development or not. He may have, but but he may have just been hired because he was a good name coming from the software development world. Something happened, though, because the guy went straight evil. I mean, <laughs> if you look at what he did over the course of the period of time from, you know, ginning up a, a BS audit report from, uh, you know, essentially participating in the cover-up through 2008 uh, to essentially becoming just the straight adversary of, of Paul Leggett down in Costa Rica. And one of the things about Yuri that we uncovered, uh, when Excapsa liquidated after the delisting from UIGA was, uh, Yuri actually set up a company called Real Time Edge up in Toronto. And we kind of dug into that company and we found out that its parent company was a Real Time Edge in Alberta. And the Alberta parent company was registered by uh offshore lawyer over in the Isle of Man that Greg Pearson had used to sell the original software code to Excapsa. So, I mean, there are a lot of offshore lawyers around the world. It just seemed like a really heavy coincidence that Greg Pearson, you know, would sell through that guy, set up a company to sell through that guy, and then set up a company for Yuri Kozai. I, I think we can all pretty much conclude that Greg Pearson set up real-time edge and, you know, installed Yuri Kozai as the, you know, de facto guy continuing to run Ultimate Bat after the, you know, merger happened after the delisting and so forth. And, you know, once you know that, once you realize that, that Greg Pearson's essentially got some kind of a control over things right up through 2007, 2008, things don't look very good for Yuri, you know? I mean, at some point, didn't he have to stand up and say, you know, guys, this probably isn't right what we're doing. Yeah, that's for sure. So uh, what do you think of the uh, Travis uh, McCarr 
thing that's going on right now. Where basically, he appeared out of nowhere uh, in 2011, uh, actually right after we had prank called Russ Hamilton and pretended to be representing him. And then a week later, he appears out of nowhere, uh, dumps some info, and then disappeared for two years. And then almost exactly two years later, reappears in 2013 and dumps a lot more info. And he seems to be dumping new stuff like every week, uh, or every few days, actually. Uh, why do you think he has reappeared after two years of being gone? And uh, you know what's in it for him at this point? Why didn't he do this two years ago? Why didn't he just continue instead of stopping? Uh, do you know of or think there's a non-disclosure non-disclosure agreement that occurred at some point? And if there was, uh, has it expired? What, what do you think is fueling this whole thing to happen at this point? Well, he did tell me that in an email that he had a non-disclosure agreement. So, I mean, I have to take the guy at his word. But I mean, if he has a non-disclosure agreement, clearly. It doesn't cover the stuff he's releasing yeah, now. Yeah, he's and, been disclosing so much. And, like, like why, yeah, why show up, sure drop all that stuff, and then and then disappear for two years, and then drop more I, I stuff. Think what's, yeah, I think what's actually kind of a uh, maybe a more uh, maybe a more complex answer to that question. I guess I, I don't even know. I just want to kind of go here with this, but what's really weird about the stuff he's dropping today is it doesn't seem like it's meant for us. Right. I I guess what I'm saying is is that when we really because we're we've been just kind of pouring through it and comparing it to actually using the stuff that we already had from the other inside leak to really verify some of it. So like there's a lot of this stuff about the host transfers and and there's you know a lot of different you know information in there that's very much inside baseball stuff. It's really stuff that even people that are seasoned in the case, people that really understand it, look at it and go, we're just scratching our heads. We're going, why the, you know, what would he, what's this about? Why is he releasing this? And, and then trying to piece it together. And, and, and it just keeps coming back to us that this information doesn't look like it's for us. It's, it's not for the public. This is for somebody else. At least the stuff that he released back in the day with you guys on Donkdown a lot of that stuff made a lot of sense to people that are following the case, but now we're releasing bank accounts for Russ's girlfriends. What's that? I mean, why? I mean, first of all, isn't that illegal? I mean, I'm not even sure you can just do that, but why are we doing that? Why are we releasing bank accounts for two of Russ's girlfriends during the time? I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting, fascinating meeting that, that they talk about where all of the ultimate bad honchos, Jim Ryan, Greg Pearson, uh, Russ, Sandy Millar, all the people that, you know, in 2007 were, you know, still the big guys at ultimate bad had to get together to have a conversation. And it's to discuss how snares being used against guys like Imperium and Pearl Jam and a few other well-noted MTTers. And it just seems really weird that this thing got released because why again would those guys be called in to talk about how AP was using a, uh, IE snare against MTT players, you know? And, and then we looked at the date and we said, well, it's like May of 2007. And we're saying, well, maybe, and then somebody just blurted out and said, well, Maybe they were worried about AP figuring out that they were cheating, and, you know, May of 2008 is just a few months before AP starts cheating. So, see what I'm saying? It's There's just so many loose connections here. And so I guess I'll just jump to the, the, the conspiracy theory part. I mean, if it's not for us, who is it for? I mean, it's got to be for somebody. 
Well, when you say for and, somebody, what do you mean by that? Well, what's the point of releasing it? I mean, is he just releasing it as sort of a puzzle game to just see how people react? Because well, what I've seen, what? They all nobody's seem to point, reacting. They all seem <laughs> to point to the same spot here. When I when I when I go through all the stuff he's releasing, well, not all of it, but most of it seems to be pointing to the same thing, and that is um, Travis is innocent. That's that's all where they're pointing. Where where there's all these tapes of them talking about setting up Travis and. Uh, putting the blame on him and, and taking blame away from Russ saying, you know, you can't blame Russ for this. He doesn't know, you know, he's not a technical guy. Travis was the technical guy. He had access to all of Russ' houses and all this other stuff and, uh, you know, that they were going to pin it on him. He's letting us hear all that. He's letting us uh, see emails talking about stuff like that. They all seem to be pointing to everyone listening to these things and reading these things and coming up with the conclusion, Travis was an innocent guy who was being framed by Russ Hamilton and others within UB. That, that to me, seems like why he's doing it. Now, why he would do this after two years when he could have done this two years ago when uh, everybody when he first popped out there, I don't understand. Why, why did he release some things, stop two years, and start again? And he did mention a non-disclosure agreement. I'm wondering if it's like a new non-disclosure agreement, maybe with Russ or somebody else, that uh, paid him to shut up, and maybe it expired, or, or maybe for some reason uh, he just doesn't care about violating it at this point. Well, let me let me just sort of play devil's advocate real quick with you on, on that because I mean certainly that's that's something we've looked you know at very closely because that is part of those tapes. But why exactly does Travis even need to clear his name? I mean, he's not a poker player. He's not in the poker world. He's not somebody who's going to set up a poker site in the future. He's he's somebody who owned a computer repair shop you know, prior to getting involved with Russ Hamilton. So um, he keeps jumping up and saying loudly that all these people are hounding him and chasing him and doing whatever. And I just don't see it. I mean, I don't think anybody even cares about Travis McCarr. I mean, I think that when, when you saw Mike on started releasing all this latest stuff, I mean, the community's reaction has been pretty much, you know, yeah, whatever. I mean, they're not even paying attention. I don't what? I don't see why he has such a need to clear his name at this point. Well, yeah, I don't know why that either, but uh, that seems to be where he's pointing a lot of this uh, information. That's where he's he seems to be releasing things that point us to that conclusion. Uh, I think a lot of the reason people are not as uh, excited about this as they were in 2011 is that when he released it in 2011, this was in February, and Black Friday had not occurred yet. Uh, Black Friday right. was kind of the you know to the UB story what uh, September 11th was to Gary Condit, in that uh, unfortunately it took a lot of the spotlight off of UB because uh, the much bigger story was Black Friday, and then what spawned from Black Friday was Full Tilt, which was even even bigger story, and then all of a sudden no one even thinks about UB anymore, which is too bad, and I, I'm happy to have people that are still pressing this in 2013 because it shouldn't be swept under the rug just because Black Friday happened. But uh, I think that's the main reason that Travis is, is being somewhat ignored with what he's dropping on Donkdown. And, and the other reason is just that uh, Donkdown does not have as much traffic as it once did. Well, and, and so what we kind of, you know, we, we've gone all around with Travis as far as what we believed his role was and, and, and so forth. And I'll just say straight out, you know, I'm going to put this in the film because I just don't have any reason not to, and his explanations and everything just don't rise to change this. From the information we've been given uh, as far as the internal transfer records, the withdrawal records and so forth, he was 
paid fairly handsomely for whatever role he had in, in being Russ Hamilton's computer guy. Uh, you know, he ended up with $207,000 worth of withdrawals. His wife got another couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, you know, he got to live in one of the most exclusive uh, communities in Las Vegas for several years. And now he's living just about maybe a mile away and his house is right on the 14th green of a nice golf course out there in Summerlin. And that house was given to him uh, or given to his mother in a quick claim for 10 bucks from Russ Hamilton. So, so and wait a minute. Did we he found return, out that he returned back to Vegas. He, I thought he was in uh, St. George. No, no, no. He's, he got, he was given a very nice house in Las Vegas. He lives literally about a mile away from Russ. And it turns out that, uh, you know, last year, uh, Todd Brunson actually put a tweet out that people thought was really funny. And, you know, being Todd being Todd, nobody knew whether he was joking or not, but he said that Russ Hamilton was having a tournament down in Aruba. And it turns out that he really was. And <laughs> it also turns out that he's actually a part owner in the Occidental Casino or the Occidental, the whatever the casino's name is in the Occidental Hotel. And he goes down there quite frequently, I guess. But it also turns out that Travis McCarr was actually registering domains and building web pages or commissioning companies to build web pages to promote Russ's casino interest down there. And it just looks to us like the two have never really split up. I think, you know, this thing about saying that Travis and Russ somehow became angry with each other or that Travis was angry for Russ throwing him under the bus, I don't think that ever happened. Hmm. So uh, and when was this uh, that uh, Travis was doing this? Uh, he registered a domain last year for the Aruba property in, like, September. Really? So in September 2012, he was still doing work for Russ Hamilton? Yes. That's very interesting. I mean, I always thought that uh, the reason Travis shut up very abruptly in 2011 was that Russ or somebody else got to him and had him sign some kind of non-disclosure agreement, some new one, in exchange for some money. I, I had to think that's why he just shut up, and the, I thought he was shutting up for good. And when he reappeared here in uh, 2013, it was really surprising to me. And it makes me wonder, maybe the agreement expired, or uh, I, I don't know. But it it hasn't been two full years. It's been like a a little bit short of two years. But uh, see, we thought the same thing. You know, when we saw the house, that's what we thought the house was. We thought the house was a payoff. You know, go about your business. I got you out of that. You know, uh, legal beef in Utah a couple of years ago with some cash to help you get a lawyer, and now I'm going to give you a house. Now just go about your life and leave me the hell alone. But. It doesn't look like that's the case at all. We, we've actually revised our entire theory of, of, of the whole thing, and it stretches back to Brainwash Dodo. And, and um, actually, when you take a look at the, these recordings from the new sort of nuanced position that we're looking at it now, it's actually pretty mind-blowing because I don't think the tapes actually say what you said at all. I mean, they do. There is definitely discussion on the tapes. Daniel Friedberg, the 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 lawyer who started out very early with IE Lockpick and then went on to be with the company right up through the dissolution and then ultimately went on to just represent Phil Helmuth and, you know, now do whatever he's doing. Um, he actually is having a straight PR conversation with Russ Hamilton in those phone calls in those or in those meetings that they're having. And there definitely is discussion about Travis being the guy that's going to get named. But if you listen to the tapes, 
what you realize is they're taking place right around July 15th, maybe 21st, something like that of 2008, because the whole brainwash dodo thing had just already happened and was done, and Nat Aram had dropped the address, 1725 Glenview. So at the time they're having this meeting, Travis is not going under any bus because Russ is already squarely under the wheels. So, so why were they talking about blaming Travis at that point if he was already uh, if it was already done deal that Russ was uh, there was no chance that he could get out of being blamed? So, what our kind of assumption is is that you know first of all you have to kind of ask yourself the question why was Russ even taping these meetings? You know, I mean, yeah, I wonder that too. He, he obviously, it, it reminds me of Richard Nixon kind of. Yeah, I mean, he had to be going into these meetings sort of in some kind of a way not being trusting of the guy from Oregon. And then the second question is, why do they send just the lawyer and, you know, it's none of the other principals? There is that that one little snippet where Greg's talking about iOvation and how it works, which is just a really bad snippet because, you know, he gets a chance to essentially say we can't see anything when – you know, if you pull back and you look at it from the 30,000-foot view, well, yeah, maybe from that one box, one administration screen, you can't see everything, but you have the access to the other screens that can see everything. In other words, you can tie the ultimate bet admin server together with the iOvation admin server, and together you can pull together an entire profile that shows who's sitting in the chair, what computer's cheating. In the snippet that Travis released, you know, Greg gets to just say, I, yeah, you know, iOvation can see when AutoMonster logs in, but other than that, you know, we don't know who's cheating behind it. We just know that when it's when it's in there, somebody can see whole cards. And I think in that way, this tape release has been kind of a challenge because it, it really is not allowing us to get much further up the road, but it is allowing us to sort of try and question what the hell's going on when they're having these meetings and I think these two guys, Friedberg and Hamilton, are bullshitting each other in these conversations. I think Hamilton's in there telling just straight lies about what's going on in his life. I think he's actually very much involved uh, with the whole brainwash dodo thing. And I think Friedberg on the other side is acting like he doesn't really know very much about it. But I think actually he knows exactly what's going on. And I think that's going to be something that we're rewriting the script about because you have to kind of understand back in 2008 when the whole brainwash dodo thing sort of blew up, what would have caused that? And, you know, what would have caused some insiders to come to the table and say, I guess the way brainwash dodo kind of phrased it was, you know, I looked around and saw no investigation coming and going. So I thought I better do one myself. And there just really isn't that many insiders that would really you know, have very much viable reason to be that kind of person. The first people that you come to when you start saying, well, who would that be? And Travis fits this bill, but it would be everybody in the Vegas team, everybody from Russ Hamilton on down, everybody that Russ Hamilton employed to keep the operation alive. Now, you and I can talk for days probably about how many of them had full knowledge of what was going on in those late-night sessions when Russ was jamming guys up for buy-in after buy-in, you know. But I think we can make a case that Travis and Carolyn Hike pretty much have to be in the know. Those two people, 
Uh, Bonnie Leanhouse, obviously, you know, clearly she's a, a Russ Hamilton confidant from way back, was involved in owning a boat with him in Florida. I mean, definitely somebody who cashed out a more million dollars, has a losing record on ultimate bet. You know, she's definitely there. But uh, um, I think those three people you can definitely say had to know what they were doing when they were changing screen names, when they were setting up the software to allow Auto Monster to work, you know, when they were doing those things. There's other guys that worked in the Ultimate Bet or the, the Ultimate Blackjack Tour offices in 2007 that don't look very good, but you might be able to say they didn't actually know about cheating. Two guys that are in there that are blackjack guys, Joe Payne and Ken Einiger, are two guys that really don't look very good from a money transfer perspective, but it's possible that they didn't know cheating was going on. So, you know, you mentioned Carolyn Hike. Uh, we had uh, Jack Bates on the show, and uh, he said that he thinks that Carolyn Hike is, is not guilty of anything that uh, involving uh, supporting the cheating. So you, you two seem to be disagree on this. Well, I mean, you know, I applaud Jack finally for coming out and talking about uh, Jason and Daniel and, uh, you know, the stuff that he was involved in back then and what he knew. Um, as far as his speculation after 2003 when he left the company, I'll put more stock in my own background because I put more energy into investigating the case. I don't know what energy he's put into investigating the case, but at the end of the day, all the stuff I have on Carolyn Hike makes her look exactly like somebody would that would know what was going on and somebody who was deeply involved in it. And I, I guess the one phrase that he used was is that Greg didn't give her the keys. Well, actually, by 2004, she was the fraud manager over the iOvation stuff. She was driving that initiative. Her name was in the PR on it. Uh, she ended up working directly for Russ Hamilton, the guy doing all the cheating, and one of her main roles was changing all the screen names for the cheaters. I mean, you can make a case that she's just this clueless idiot sitting in an office and just doing what she was told, but, I mean, I kind of look at, at Carolyn, and I see something that's a lot more interesting, and I, I don't know if we're ever going to get this full story. We might. Because I think if we really dug into it, and I know we're, we don't really want to bring this name up too much, but my guess is is that she's probably one of Haley's very close inside sources. And the deal is is that Carolyn actually knew Greg Pearson clear back to 93. She worked with him in an IT uh, situation at a Copeland Lumberyard in Portland, Oregon. So she's like employee number five. She comes into IE Logic right on the ground floor, and yet I mean, she doesn't really look like she has. Well, she doesn't have any, you know, specialization. She doesn't have any, you know, she's not a database person. She's not a software coder. She's, you know, she's just a troubleshooter. <laughs> she's just somebody you can rely on to, to get the job done. And and they did rely on her. They sent her to Toronto. They sent her to Vegas. They sent her to Costa Rica. She she moved all over the country, all over the world, in in, in some respects with two small children. And so then she finally ultimately ends up working directly under Russ Hamilton in Vegas. And now some of this stuff that Travis is releasing, you know, it's emails directly from Carolyn Hike. Now I guess Travis is the computer guy probably had administrative rights on whatever server setup they had down there. I guessing he probably could get all of Hike's email and get all of Russ's audio tapes and get all of this other stuff. I just don't think that makes a lot of sense. A uh, person who appeared on 2 Plus 2, 
and, and uh, in 2008 and dumped a lot of uh, information that became useful for uh, um, understanding what was going on at UB at the time. And um, obviously an insider, but uh, a lot of speculation as to who that was. Are you saying that you think there's a chance that Brainwash Dodo was someone uh, close to Russ or maybe even Russ himself? I'm sure it was not Kaiser Soze. I mean, Zoltan Rosa. <laughs> but whether it was actually Russ, I mean, it's a, the, the operational theory that we're working on. We've kind of morphed this theory over the years. The, the, the original theory was is that it was Travis. I mean, think, let's just think about this for a second. It's 2008. It, let's go back even a little earlier. 2007, Absolute Poker gets caught with a stupid cheating scandal. They handle it just dismally. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible situation. They don't, uh, you know, really do much admission. They ultimately end up, you know, pay some money back, kind of sweep the rest of it under the rug. The, the hand histories get lost conveniently. They fly a guy down there to do some investigation, but it all essentially gets kind of put to bed pretty neatly. And the rumor is that one of the guys, not one of the original founders, but somebody close to him ends up getting a nice sweet payday and he has to just leave. In fact, we did interview Nat Aram and he told us that Paul Leggett's office was actually the week before uh, Alan Grimard's office. So that's the guy that they supposedly paid off, and he was running the company right up until about the week before Nat got there. In the UB case, you have to kind of look at that and say, well, you know, they said Absolute Poker was, what, a million and a half, something like that, in, in terms of what was stolen. But in UB, you know, it was clear by the middle of 2008 that the numbers were going to be exponentially higher and so when they had to come up with that Alan Grimard on the UB side, and they were going to have to come up with somebody, they couldn't just say it wasn't me, KGC needed a scalp. I mean, that's all there was to it. There was going to have to be somebody who was going to be held responsible. And when you start looking at that, well, it's not going to be like Greg Pearson. It's not going to be guys like, you know, DeHaan or Cunningham who have left the company years ago. It's not going to be, you know, the lawyers. You have to start at Russ Hamilton and work your way down from there to find the guy who it's going to be. And I think what probably happened was, and you have to even go back now a little further because we're really digging hard into the Ultimate Blackjack Tour now. And one of the things we learned is by mid-2007, Greg and Russ almost were not on speaking terms. It was, it was a nasty situation between these two guys where they still had a lot of business ventures together but they just hated each other. And it, it was apparently kind of comical because Russ would actually have somebody, you know, it was one of these weird movie situations where somebody would actually have to take the call and then say to him, you know, what Greg was saying and or blah, blah, blah. And so you get into 2008 now, and we know somebody's got to go under the bus. And the discussion or the negotiation is, that it's going to be one of these lesser people like Travis or maybe Carolyn Hike actually, because she was somebody who it could have been uh, somebody who very plausibly had it pinned on. Now, who knows what happened? Maybe there was a negotiation. Travis once said there was a deal for $25,000 a month for three years. That would have been 3 million bucks. And, you know, seems like a logical deal, but that didn't happen. Apparently Travis, you know, credibility has to be, you know, determined. Behind that, though, somebody had to go, and we know how it ultimately did play out. How it ultimately played out was uh, 
it didn't work out very neatly in that somebody started blowing the whistle, started dropping all this information, forced the hand, and ultimately the hand that was forced put Russ squarely in the crosshairs, even though on the he's complaining and crying that just aren't noticing that Travis lives in this house. Well, no, because you own the house, right? And that's more important because you're a founder and Travis is just your computer guy. So I think you can really come back to this thing and say, if Russ and Travis are still very good friends and if they're still working together, probably what happened is is that back in the day, they were all sitting around trying to understand who was going to get thrown to the wolves and what kind of a financial deal they were going to make and how it was all going to come together, and they just couldn't come to an agreement with Oregon, probably directly related to the fact that Greg and Russ were not very friendly. And ultimately what ends up happening is, is they construct this dodo thing to essentially drive it, to force it, to push it in the direction that they kind of want it to go, um, and, you know, force some, some financial remuneration or whatever happens so that ultimately it can get shut for the next two years, which it did. You know, they paid out the money. Everybody was able to kind of go on their way until Travis showed up in 2010. Um, what about Mansour Matlubi? What do you know about his part? And is it tr- do you know it to be true that uh, he was threatening them, that, uh, that he's basically broke and uh, that he's going to blow the whistle on everything if they don't pay him? You know, that's the first thing we heard of that, and, and the reason why it's the first thing is because he's, you know, he's over there in Thailand, and he's just been really quiet. I mean, he just is not really, he keeps a very low profile. He's played in a couple APPT events. Other than that, he just really has not really, you know, put his head up at all, and we've tried to contact him several times. Obviously, he's not responded. I mean, you go back, he was definitely somebody who was sort of a Hamilton underling, the guy who got dragged into the site. And, you know, I don't know if he really had much of his own money invested in it early on or not, but he ended up with a decent amount of shareholdings, and they used him as the offshore guy. So he probably felt like, I mean, in their view, I think they think he can't come back to the United States, although I don't. I don't really know why he doesn't have any outstanding warrants or indictments on him or anything. So, you know, the, but I think they all sort of thought, you know, that that was a deal with him. And and yeah, he, he might have that kind of chip on his shoulder as far as saying, look at all the weight I carried. And, you know, I didn't get hardly anything out of it. I mean, if we really construct a broad, you know, brush brainwashed Dodo portrait, it would be Russ, Mansoor, Carolyn, Travis, Bonnie, and maybe one or two other people that that probably need to get paid in order to, you know, carry this thing off. Hmm. Okay, well, some interesting theories here, and uh, I look forward to seeing your documentary when it comes out. And uh, you know, I know you're uh, a polarizing figure in uh, the whole uh, UB investigation community, but uh, more people, more eyes on them, the better. And uh, you know, I think the more people that uh, put out their stories and put out what they get access to and put out uh, their theories, I think the closer we'll get to the full truth. So, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on here, and uh, you know, I appreciate the work that you do. And uh, you I know, appreciate I, that. I, I did want to actually just speak real briefly about uh, Brad Booth because I thought he kind of got done unfairly. Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, speak on Brad Booth. I'm, I'm not really sure why he's actually getting done the way he's getting right now, but... 
Um, I met Brad actually after he came on your guys' show, and I just was trying to get in contact with him to see if he could get me some hand histories, and he did actually. But we got to know each other pretty well, and um, you know, I've just kind of kept up with him. And, and I will say this: uh, he actually is very similar to the way Phil Helmuth got his shares in IA Logic. Uh, Brad went found me some guys who got the investment for Ultimate Beat, and and so as you know, a guy promoting and getting me guys to invest in this project, I gave him ownership. So he's got, you know, some percentage of ownership in this project. I made clear, and this is, you know, con this causes consternation from time to time, he has absolutely zero editorial control. You know, he's just essentially a passive investor, and if the film makes any money, which, you know, it's never been our real goal, but if it does, then he'll make a little kick out of that, and my guess is, is he'll turn that back over to all the people he owes money to. But what happened was is Travis came out and he said, we all know Brad got paid, and I don't really understand where that came from. And then they showed this text message conversation where it sort of looks like Brad's, you know, sort of involved in some nefarious blackmail scheme or something. And I think really what's going on here is they're just sort of saying, well, if you're going to accuse us of blackmail, I guess we better just, you know, do the same to you. And, of course, you know, me and Brad Booth don't equate to Travis and Russ Hamilton. I mean, I, I certainly hope we never equate to them. But um, And what happened actually with Brad, which was actually very, very simple, was last year he fell into that whatever you want to call it, the degeneracy that he fell into, where he lost a bunch of money in the pit. He took advantage of uh, some money transfer with uh, Doug Polk and ended up making a video about the thought, speaking very honestly about his situation. But, you know, he, he definitely knew he made a huge mistake and, and fell off the table. And, and back at that time when he was really trying to figure out how the heck he was going to get, you know, back in the game and get his life back together, he was starting to pound on Phil Helmuth because he really feels like Phil kind of, you know, is somebody who sort of let him fall off the cliff here. And, and one of the things about Phil Helmuth that happened last year that a lot of people don't know is he made some more money off ultimate bet last year in 2012, after Friday, after everybody else didn't get their money from UBAP, Phil Helmuth got money from UB. And so did a lot of other people that were investors. Greg yeah. Pearson got money from UB. All the people that own shares in the company got money from UB so last I, I year. Thought they were Final flat broke. I thought they were flat broke by that point. No, they still actually had about uh, whatever it was, 5 or $10 million the Canadian Revenue Authority was holding. And the Canadian Revenue Authority let that money loose and the liquidator dispersed it to the, to the people. And so what happened was I kind of view it one way, Brad, Brad tells me it's a different thing, but I kind of look at it as, you know, Phil actually just kind of tossed Brad this money sort of, you know, to, to go away, but he gave him 5,000 bucks. Now, what Brad says, and actually I don't have any reason to disbelieve him on this because there was a, there was a circumstance of this, but back in the 2008 time frame, Phil was actually talking to people that got refunds, and he actually said to Brad, he said, I'll bet you your refund is X. Right, or I'll bet you're gonna, you know, do what? And he was essentially making a bet with a guy for five grand that he already knew the answer to. <laughs> and, and you know, because Brad didn't know he was an owner back then or what, I don't know. But in the end of the day, Helmuth gives him five thousand dollars. At the same 
I'm that guy in the clip in the trailer uh, that gets twenty four thousand dollars from Leggett in two thousand and eleven. That's Brad Booth too, but that wasn't a payoff. That wasn't any money that was given to him in two thousand eleven that he didn't deserve. That was money that was set aside into a debt account that they easily could have seen was Brad Booth playing on the account. Now, it's definitely a situation of playing on an account that wasn't his, but man. If you look at this insider data that we have right now, I don't think I can find hardly anybody that didn't have multiple accounts on Ultimate Bet. And some of the names and some of the numbers of accounts that these people have are insane. And I'm going to throw this out there, and I, I don't mean to throw the guy under the bus, and I actually think I'm going to, I'm going to kind of clear him in some, some ways. We spent an awful lot of time on Thomas Keller in this investigation really? because Thomas Keller has some just amazing looking stuff, um, just some gigantic wins, uh, gigantic win rates, some gigantic withdrawals. But what he had was is he had actually one of the very first sort of, you know, there was always, you know, sort of speculation about people like Antonius and some of these, you know, other guys who were, frequently switching up to different accounts because they couldn't get, you know, the kind of action that they wanted under their own names. And it turns out that Thomas had several people that he used to, to work in that way where they really weren't the players. He was, and he was able to actually apply, you know, his good skills back then on a soft UB and really make a lot of money. Um, it looked to us and it looked actually to the people doing the serious investigation like he was deeply involved in the UB fraud. We cleared him of that. It, it does not look to us like he was at all involved in the UB fraud. It just looks like he actually took advantage of UB's lax policies to really ride the crest of the poker boom back in the day when it really was a license to print money. That's interesting because uh, I actually played a lot with Thomas Keller online on uh, mostly PokerStar, some on UB too, but... Uh... Uh, a lot on Poker Stars back uh, at Limit Hold'em with him, and, uh, and his brother Sean as well. Now, I, I don't see Thomas much anymore since uh, you know Thomas, who was uh, very overweight through most of his life and uh, uh, got the gastric bypass surgery, lost a whole lot of weight. You never even recognize him anymore. But uh, I guess developed a drug problem as well and um, kind of fell out of poker, as a lot of people do when that happens. But uh, I see his brother Sean all the time, and of course his brother Sean was. Uh, Infamous at the time for having one of the biggest single session losses ever uh, at the time. It, the nosebleed games changed all that, but uh, where he lost 500k to uh, some Norwegians. Uh, oddly enough, even though that happened on UB, I believe that was a legitimate match since I, I know who was playing him, and I don't believe they had any kind of connection to uh, to the the ownership or management at UB. But uh, that was one of the things we actually used when we were, you know, building the column of things, sort of against you know, them being involved in the fraud. You know, that's there's a lot of guys who we look at who we can show that actually got a lot of cheating. And so, you know, a guy like Freddie Deeb was a good example. He got cheated for a lot of money. So you say very clearly that he probably didn't know at least those screen names that when he was getting cheated. But you can't really dismiss him based on the other stuff that we have. And that that's something I'm going to tease you on with the movies. He's definitely got an interesting role, and I, I think ultimately he's going to meet with us before this is all said and done. We've had some sort of tentative moves towards each other, but uh, 
Um, I think we'll ultimately get to Freddy before we actually get the, the movie done. Yeah, I've always wondered a lot about Freddy with that. Uh, uh, one question from the chat room from Rolo Tomasi. Uh, how did Thomas Keller, with winning all the money he did there, how did he avoid uh, the cheaters? <laughs> That's a pretty good question. Actually, he didn't avoid the cheaters. He, One of the reasons, what I'll tell you is is that in the documents that we have, there's a this, it's just really an ugly page. It's called Suspicious Accounts, and what it is is it's all the people that were slated for a refund that really had some some questionable stuff, and Keller's right up there at the top. He had a, a very large refund that they withheld for a long time. They they raked him over the coals and 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 made him come up with explanations and stuff before they finally gave him his refund back, but uh, he did get cheated a lot. That's interesting because I think Thomas Keller disappeared, though, uh... When the refunds were issued, I think he was already gone from poker, and I barely saw him after that. I saw him occasionally at the odd uh, World Series event here and there, but since then he's been you know, he's been pretty much gone. His brother Sean's been around, but uh, Thomas just has been gone. I don't even know what he's, what he's been doing. So if he got- see what we couldn't, what we could never really do with Thomas, and Thomas is a really interesting guy. I mean, he's somebody I've admired for a long time. Actually, he's really an interesting guy, though. He's got an econ degree from Stanford. Right, yeah, I mean, he's so, like twenty when he got you know, it too. Milton Friedman actually has an econ degree from Stanford. So I mean, you know, he 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 goes off and he becomes this poker guy. Then he has this drug problem. Then he kind of becomes a sports degenerate, and he just sort of falls off the table. But if you met him today, he's like very cleaned up. Like you say, he's in shape. He's 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 whatever. Back during the the, the late part of the scandal, the interesting thing with Thomas was. He got hooked up with Russ Hamilton. He definitely did get hooked up with Russ. We think it was probably in that sort of Mattisau kind of way where Russ sort of preyed and was very predatory on the, the degenerate more than he was on the people like Taylor Cady, for instance. You know, I mean, if you know you're only going to get one buy-in out of a guy, why are you going to focus on him when you can, you know, wail on Prahlad who might just dump 20, you know, buy-ins off the out of spite. And that's, with Thomas, that kind of was the same situation, and he kind of got, I think, involved with Russ in sports betting, got deep on the hook there, and he got involved with another guy who we're really interested in finding, but we just can't seem to nail down. He's in Hawaii. His name's Rick Casper, and he was a guy who actually final table the WPT event, but a really shady dude, uh, had a wife that went to prison for, you know, killing some a family on in a drunk driving thing, uh, but he's really on a lot of Hamilton's real estate. Uh, he's he's got a a big real estate fingerprint in the in the scandal, and and he's got uh, a lot of transfer stuff. But uh, there's just a lot of these names. I could name I could probably name 20 names here that most people don't associate with the scandal, and maybe don't even know. So I guess you just got to watch. The movie. You're gonna have to wait for the movie. All right. Well, a lot of interesting stuff you said here. So uh, thank you very much for uh, appearing on the show tonight, and uh, you know feel free to come back anytime. Okay, appreciate it. All right, thank you, thank you. So uh, that was uh, Scott Bell, Eleven Grover, who uh, he does have an account here on Poker Fraud Alert if you ever want to talk to him. And as you can tell, a very dedicated researcher into this uh, stuff on UB, uh, and uh, doesn't get along with everybody in the community that also investigates UB, but uh, still does uh, a lot of work on it and uh, uncovers a lot of things. So I'm glad to have him on the show. Uh, very close to the end here. Seriously, serious? You still with us? No, no, I left. Yeah, that's uh, I'm gone. I wouldn't blame you. You know, some people. It's uh, 
UB isn't their cup of tea. It's like in the chat, uh, when this started, like, I could tell, like, all the people who were into the UB thing were, like, just chatting up a storm and everybody else kind of uh, went quiet. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like giving all this airtime because it just doesn't get enough airtime in general in the poker media, especially since Black Friday. And, uh, and of course, I was involved with the whole thing myself. Uh, one of the early people who discovered the cheating on AP back in 2007. Uh, for those of you that don't remember, the cheating was discovered on AP first, even though it had been going on in UB prior to that. Uh, just nobody had caught UB yet. They they weren't as blatant about it. And AP, they did it very stupidly to where it uh, became obvious to people like me who just got hammered by the same few players in a very short period of time. So, uh, anyway... Um, Anybody like to call in? River phone call. We're going to end the show soon. 702-430-1808. I'll give that number first. That's the Mount Charleston line. 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355. Somebody asked when's the movie coming out. He just he doesn't really know. They're, they're still uh, revising it. This has been a work in progress for a while. But I'm sure uh, Scott will give updates when uh, it's getting close. But uh, it probably won't be out like really soon. But uh, I know they're trying to incorporate some of the new things that have come out in the last few months. So, uh, if you'd like to call aren't, in... Aren't call... we expecting a Ken Scaler phone call today? Uh, it was a possible Ken Scaler phone call. Everybody was getting very excited by the prospect of hearing from Ken Scaler. I haven't heard from him much recently. Uh, he will be going to the Coachella Music Festival, both weekends of it, uh, in April, and he's very excited about that. He pretty much lives for that. And... I'm going to give another piece of information that uh, I'm not sure if I've mentioned before. Uh, the first weekend, well, actually, both weekends, he is going with a girl and two different girls. Now, the first weekend is nothing to get excited about. The first weekend is a girl he's known since the 90s, someone who's never had any kind of attraction to him, someone who's never, you know, he's never done anything with and never will. So they're just... Uh, there's just someone he's been friends with for a long time. So that that's not the big deal. The second week, though, the second week is someone, it's kind of more ambiguous with what that situation is. He's going with a different girl the second week. It's a girl who's only 23 years old. He's known her for about two years. He met her because Ken still goes to community college just for fun. You know, he has like, like three or four AA degrees at this point. But uh, uh, he is friends with this girl, and... Uh, not sure how much more than that, too. But that one is not as sure as the first one that nothing's going to happen. But he is taking that second girl, the 23-year-old, and uh, they hang out a lot. And it's interesting. I wonder what's going to happen there on weekend two in the Motel 6 at Coachella. A caller, it looks like from Canada, you're on the air. Hey, Todd, it's Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr, hi. Uh, Welcome to the show. I know you more chat than call in, but happy to have you calling in. What would you like to say? Uh, I want you to answer me what you think the odds are of something. I have a bunch of friends coming in this weekend from the United States because there's a big $7 million guaranteed tournament on PokerStars. Huh. Uh, $1 million guaranteed to um, first place. It's the 10th anniversary of the Sunday Million. And with this sequestered stuff going on, I'm wondering what the chances are of you think them being able to make the flight with the air traffic controllers and all that might be uh, out of work and stuff. Um, hmm. You know, I hate Do to tell you, you I, I have done by Friday or no? I, I haven't followed that enough to answer. I, I, well, is there sorry. a strike? I, I can't help you. 
Oh damn! But uh, so so that's the uh, so Poker Stars is having a uh, million dollar first place guarantee. Yeah, and I guess uh, you guys have some budget thing going through, and if it doesn't pass this week by Friday at noon, it automatically triggers tre- ten trillion. That's with a T. Million dollars of budget cuts over the yeah, next ten yeah. years. Yeah, that's uh, that's what he's talking. About. He's talking about the, uh, the 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 budget issue that begins March first. So uh, yeah, and if uh, and that means at Friday at noon, if that doesn't pass, automatically uh, one third of air traffic controllers are going to be laid off. Yeah, it's, it's affecting everything. It affects the uh, the Department of Defense and uh, air traffic controllers and you know, many other federal employees. So uh, I actually thought that they and were the reason ha- they passed it with all these stupid provisions is so that they would actually be forced to make a deal so that these stupid things couldn't happen, but. It doesn't look like they're going to make a deal. Yeah, I actually thought this was going to. Yeah, I thought this was just a lot of scare tactics. I thought it was actually going to be taken care of before uh, before the uh, March first deadline. Uh, but as far as the air traffic controllers, uh, the reason I can't help you is I really haven't followed that angle of it very much. And right. uh, now, a brown eighty three is saying in the chat that he doesn't think it'll cause any problems. Um, I, I think that it'll probably just be delays, but not so much. Uh, Canceled flights, but that's just my guess. I have no uh, no okay. reason to say that. And I didn't. I didn't mean to ignore you. Yes, there is a seven million dollar tournament this weekend, guaranteed on Poker Stars, with uh, one million guaranteed to first place, with a two hundred fifteen dollar dollars. Yeah. Well, that's uh, I haven't been on Poker Stars in a long time, being an American. But uh, I hope your friends can make it up there. You know, it's really strange to talk to you, Bobby, or without dashes in between every one of your words. <laughs> I mean, you, 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 so this guy chats all the time. For those of you that don't know, that don't chat and listen to this broadcast uh, in the archives, which is actually most of the people, most of the listeners of this show, and I have to always keep this in mind, most of the listeners of the show listen in the archives. They get it from iTunes, they get it on Stitcher, they download it directly from this site. It's only a small percentage that listen here live. And uh, But Bobby Orr, he, uh, he provides a lot of good information in the chat. He also knows some... Uh, Canadian poker players, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, will pass along things that they uh, that they tell him or, or would like to say. But you know, good guy, Bobby Orr here. I've never met him in person, but uh, he has a problem with his space bar and has for years apparently, and types a, a dash in between every word instead of a space. Now, why don't you just get a new keyboard? It's a it's a laptop, and what happened is the spring. You know, the spring that makes the contact with whatever it is that yeah. makes the space happen has popped out a few times, and I've had it put back in, and it just keeps popping out all the time, and now i finally lost the spring. Oh. I would think you so, could I mean, I, I think you get it repaired, though. I need though, a new laptop. Completely. You do need a new Sorry? laptop. Though I need a new laptop also. Though I will say the fail that occurs in this show, the technical fail that uh, occurs here and occurred once tonight from what I could tell, and unfortunately, one failure on this show is actually good. That's actually running under the expected. But uh, it's not a result of my laptop. I've, I've concluded it is the Internet here. And when I broadcast from this location, the Internet has some kind of little hiccups that affect the radio that don't affect anything else I do on the Internet, but they, 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 must, have, they must occur just long enough to disconnect from the radio server. So I'm I'm not sure what to do about it. I've attempted to deal with my ISP, and they just they don't even want to acknowledge it as a problem. 
So, uh, so was your point that that balances out my space bar problem? No, no, it's just a separate your fail. Thing. No, no, it's just a separate thing. But I, I, I just think oh. it's funny. Like, I, I, expect, I expected the space bar problem to go on for like a month. I didn't expect it. Like it's been going on for years. It's crazy. I guess it's kind of my uh, thing now. Okay. Yeah, I but guess. I, I guess it is. I guess it would be it, weird no to see to see Bobby or uh, uh, typing in the chat without with spaces. I'd go crazy. It just which wouldn't look like him. <laughs> So, so um, uh, before I go, I've never said hi to Thomas before, so I just like to say, hi, "Thomas, how you doing?" Hello. I think he just pressed one as an acknowledgement. Okay, cool. Oh, uh, All right, Todd, Ola. take care. Okay, thank you, Bobby. Okay, bye bye. Adios. Seriously, serious. Did you know that I can? I know all the touch tones. Well, by by, uh, by the sound of them. No. You don't believe me? No, I don't. I do it. Press a button. Uh, I don't know if you can from Skype, but you can I try. can, but I forget how. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that's right. No, I do. I know every single button, like that button that was pressed. I don't know. Who oh, here it. we go. Here we go. Okay, go ahead. Ready? Yeah. Five. Nine. One. Four. 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 Three. What? How are you doing this? That's amazing. Not only that, I can do it like like like. I've had people like hit their redial button where really fast, and I tell them the whole seven digits. Star. Wow. Yeah. No. Um. <laughs> I, I discovered I didn't try to do this. I, I actually discovered I could uh, when I was about I don't know, thirteen years old or so. Like uh, I, I discovered this from like when my dad would be dialing things on speakerphone, and I would just say, "Oh, he just called such and such number." And I go, "Wait a minute, how do I know that?" <laughs> like that's really how it went. Like I did not make any effort to learn this. But I just had an ear for these tones, and it's actually been useful in many cases. And uh, I actually advised my friends to never dial their voicemail password in front of me. Not that I would hack their voicemail, but I, I just have them know that if they're dialing anything in front of me, I will hear it and know what it is. So, uh, um, I actually, I used this for a practical purpose. Back when I called party lines, and uh, there was no way to, like, talk to someone privately. So, if, like, I'd be talking to a girl on there, and... Uh, I want to get her phone number. She doesn't want to say her phone number because every guy on the line will get it. She just wants to give it to me. So I say, hey, just dial in the phone number and I'll get it. So she would, and I'd be the only one who could get it. But, uh, yeah. That's insane. You know, when I used to, uh, when I was doing radio at Quad Jacks, a lot of times on the air, I would call, I would make calls uh, using the dial pad. And, yeah. Uh, yeah I've apparently gotten, that was a huge mistake. <laughs> I've got numbers, like I've, I've heard on, on uh, terrestrial radio shows where they'll actually dial a number with the tones on the air and I'll get the number. I, I usually wouldn't call it because I don't want to bother the person, but I, I, I could get people's numbers that way. And, uh, you'd be surprised. I even had it once where someone was prank calling me and, and with a friend on three way. And then one of them banged the redial button accidentally. And I got the friend's number and then I said it, I said, Oh, and I like said the number right there. And they're like, Oh my God, how did you do that? And they freaked the hell out. That's, what about on uh, what about on TV and in movies when they dial numbers? Do they use fake numbers? Oh, when that, they're just that dialing? Me so much. I hate that because they, yes, they do. So like, I'll see someone <laughs> dialing like uh, you know uh, a totally different number than what I hear, and it's it's just crazy. It's like someone saying uh, those curtains are blue and they're orange. Like that's that's the way it comes out to me. Are and they I, just mashing random numbers? They're just mashing random numbers. Yeah. So that 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 tilts me when I see that. It's just. Nobody else notices, but to me it looks really wrong. The only other people I've known who could do this are actually blind. With blind people, it makes more sense. Sure. 
but uh, with me... Um, for, once, uh, for once, there's actually a question to me in the chat, which I'd like to go ahead and answer, which is, why did I take down the Dice Dice video, but leave up the Matt Marifiotti parody? And I don't know where that question's coming from. Like, he must think I had some other reason for taking down the Phil Ivey video. Like, uh, like maybe Phil Ivey demanded that I do it or something. Uh, the only reason I took it down is because that was the one video that I didn't actually fully write myself. I wrote, like, half of the lyrics to that and none of the video. So it's not really mine. So I don't even want it, and I don't want it anyway, because I think that's probably the worst song I ever did. Yeah, you know what, by the way, I uh, I also won radio contests playing touch-tone songs. So. And, you know, I thought, um, what are what are the tones? There's... The, the way the tones work... And uh, this this still exists to this day. I know cell phones, uh, the tones aren't as important because you're not getting a dial tone. It's it's more just seeing the numbers on the screen hitting send. But um, the tones are still the same tones that you hear on a, on a home phone, the same tones that uh, they created back in the 60s. And uh, the way it goes is it starts with 1. 1 is the, the note C. And, uh, and then it goes 1, 2, 3. But it doesn't go 4 next. Then it goes 6, 9, pound. So the other numbers uh, don't really figure into it. So Wait, wanna... C one two three is C D E. Yes. Or is it like or is it like no, C C sharp? No, no, it's it's C D E, and then six nine pound is uh, F G A. Okay. Are there sharps or flats in any of the dialogue? Uh, no, uh, but I've never really figured out the core. What exactly four five seven eight star and zero are? They're kind of like this. Maybe maybe those are kind of some weird star and like flat, but I, I don't think it's exactly the sharp and flat like like. You know what they actually are. I think it's something in between, but not exactly in between. I never figured out what those are musically. But when I've played okay, songs well, on the phone, it's always one, two, three, six, nine, pound. Well, there should be the perfect amount because there's twelve buttons if they're all using unique ones, and there are twelve. Um, there are twelve semitones in an octave. You know, if you if you go all the way through uh, A A sharp B C C sharp D, there's you, twelve. You, you could try to oh. figure it out, you know, but uh, one, two, three, six, nine, pound are the ones I know. Uh, you can try to figure out what four, five, seven, eight star and zero are. Uh, Jack Bates in the chat is saying uh, dual tone multi frequency. That's uh, referred to uh, DTMF, which is what they refer to as the, for the uh, touch tones, and uh, oh, and it is two tones at once. Actually, what you're hearing. So the oh. you know like a touch tone is actually not one tone; it's two tones together. Okay, you see that that might explain why then, because I I've heard that you can't actually. There are some songs where they're just it doesn't have all the notes that you could play it on a phone. Yeah, well, it's because you only have basically six notes, uh, one, two, three, six, nine pound. But uh, and it, yeah, he's saying each button is a chord. It is a chord, but they 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 correlate basically to C D E F F G A. So that's for those of you that are familiar with music and with phones. Now you can probably play songs better. And uh, if there's ever another radio contest, you can probably compete with me and beat me. At uh, but I got rolled. You know, the I once won uh, tickets in nineteen. 19- I think 89 or 90 I won on, on KISS FM, which is a huge station in L.A. Still is. Uh, I won tickets to this uh, really big concert they were having, kind of the early version of uh, of Wango Tango that came later. And uh, I won them thanks to this touchdown contest. And they rolled me because this this got canceled. And they sent me, quote, an equivalent prize, which was to some super fail concert that was totally different and, and worth much less. So... Kiss FM really rolled me on that. Small claims, bro. Small claims. Yeah, yeah. I was only like seventeen or eighteen. I couldn't really do that. But 
Yeah, I, uh, I've always had that ability, and it's it's come in handy more times than you would think. You think, oh, okay, that's totally useless. It's it's not going to do any good for you. And it's, while it hasn't changed my life, it actually has. Uh, and you know what? I'll tell you, when I've talked to girls that I would meet, like forget party lines, like any way, like I talked to a girl on the phone for the first time, and we'd be having like a conversation that's hours long. And I'd wonder, should I bring this up? Like, I'm afraid in one case it's going to scare them and make me seem weird. And the other way, it'll make them make myself like seem really smart and make like like unique and and be interesting. And I actually decided in most cases to show it to them. And most girls were impressed by this. Most girls actually liked that, and they they were in disbelief at first. They're like, "No, you can't do that." I'm like, "Okay, dial like five numbers in a row." And they they dial five numbers. They go, "Oh my god, how can you do that?" And I say, "No," and they're thinking, "You're using a machine." I go, "No, no. I'll, when when I see you, uh, you can do it to me. You can just put your phone up to my ear and dial." And Todd, are you any good with music? You know how to play any instruments or anything? You know, Biebs is asking this in chat. You should play an instrument. When I was a kid, I did play the piano. I did play the trumpet for a short time. Uh, but uh, I, I haven't played either of those in such a long time. I would be terrible now if I attempted to play them. And uh, I, I wasn't that talented a, as a musician um, at playing those, those instruments. I was, of course, good with uh, playing by ear which is, uh, you know, just telling me, hey, play this song that I would know and I could come up with the notes for it uh, a lot faster than other people could. But uh, as far as, like, just reading music and doing normal, you know, instrument playing, I, I just was average. So that's why I didn't... Uh, that, that's why I didn't go that far with it. Someone just asked in chat, has Todd ever recognized a woman dialing 911 when alone in her bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, no. Fortunately, that uh, that it hasn't been dialed. But if I was like in the bathroom and I heard nine one one being dialed, I, I would be able to like sprint into the bedroom and hang up really fast, if if that ever came up. But uh, I, I don't think it will. I, you know, I don't think that uh, my current girlfriend's going to call nine one one on me because uh, you know at, at this point I'm the father of a child, so it's not a good thing to do. So, uh, but yeah, uh, speaking of my child, Benjamin did go to. The Nobu restaurant, he had his first meal there. He actually ate some things that surprised me. He ate this weird kind of, they served this really weird, like, kind of pound cake looking thing that actually was, was made of seafood, like seafood and egg, but it looked like a pound cake. And uh, it was, like, made of shrimp. And someone asked at the table, is there any way Benjamin would like that? And I said, if it was a real pound cake, he would like it, but there's no chance he would like this. Well, my girlfriend gave it to him. He actually ate the whole thing. I couldn't believe it. It's like such not a thing you would think a two-year-old would like. Well, I, I think I think a lot of kids get sweet dudes because you consider them so uh, you give it to them so sparingly, it becomes an object of desire. This you know, like if you force a kid to eat vegetables, you might hate vegetables. But if you had kind of a, a lax attitude about it, you might not think there's anything wrong with them. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Benjamin actually likes a lot more foods than I do. Uh, it's, it's embarrassing to admit that my two-year-old son is willing to eat uh, a lot more variety of food than I am, but he is. And uh, I, I don't know if he'll remain that way, but I've, I've always had a kind of a narrow range as far as the type of food I like. And uh, I think like if I go to a restaurant, I can always find something I like, but uh, I, I really do, don't like when food gets too exotic, and there's a lot of food I don't like. A lot of vegetables I don't like, uh, a lot of seafood I don't like, and... Uh, a lot of dishes that they make that are, you know, with different types of sauces and things like that, that I just, it just seems too weird for me. I just can't have it. Other people I'm, not, I'm not a picky eater at all. There's only one food that I don't like. Unfortunately, it's extremely common. What but, is that? Uh, 
onions. Well, a lot of people don't like onions. I, 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 I like onions in like very small doses, like really small, like if it's more of a, a thing to give the food flavor. But I, I, I wouldn't like eating onions themselves or, or something with a lot of onions. Like, like when they put onions in my burger, it just destroys it. I hate yeah. onions on my burger. Absolutely. Hate Somebody it. asked me once, uh, how much would I, how much money would it take to get me to eat a raw onion hull? And I didn't have an answer for it. But I can tell you that like 20,000 wouldn't be enough. Well, you know, I, I hate sushi, so I didn't get any sushi at Nobu. I, I really mainly went there for my girlfriend who was really looking forward to it because she loves sushi. And, um, you know, she, she hadn't uh, been to Nobu yet. So that just opened uh, a month ago. So uh, I remember when, when a big plate of sushi came out and Brandon asked, how much would we have to pay you to get you to eat this whole thing? And he's like, I don't know. And he said, what about $1,000? I'm like, uh, you know what? I don't even think I'd eat it for $1,000. He said, what about 5000 He said, you know, 5000 I would do it. He wasn't offering, but he was just uh, asking hypothetically. But I, right. I really, really do dislike certain foods to where it would be really, really hard to get it down. I, it really had to be worth a big payout to force myself to do it. Uh, but then there's other people that just will eat uh, eat anything. And uh, there's there's two people actually I shouldn't say two people there's a well on this forum there are two people who have met Benjamin besides me of course and besides Benjamin's mom who has an account but never posts China Maniac and Brandon China Maniac met him when we were in Boston um, Mycon has actually met Benjamin when he was very very small but that's it Mycon's not on this forum obviously. Kind of a snarky question here in the chat that I'll address as well, which is, so is seriously serious implying that he can do anything he wants with Phil Ivey and his brand? I, I don't think I implied that. No. But, but I can parody and, and you know, create satires of anyone and anything that I want. I'm well within my rights to do that, yeah. and I'm not afraid to. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Nobu, I'll say, was very expensive, by the way. It was, it was, it was good, but it was really, really expensive to e- even though where I was paying with uh, reward credits, it still bothered me how expensive it was. Like I just, I'm just so Jewish, I just can't stand, even if I'm paying with some sort of like comp credit, unless the comp's going to disappear anyway and I have to use it. But if something I can save for later or use for something else, it just bothers me when I, I pay for something that's like way, way overpriced. And that just never goes away. I'll tell you, this even extends to fantasy baseball. When uh, we're bidding on a player in the auction format and the price just gets too high and even though I know I need this player for my team and I know if I don't get him and he's the, like the last like high value player uh, at that position and I really need that player at that position I'm afraid sometimes to, to, to overpay for him in fantasy dollars because uh, I just hate it I, go, I know he's worth so much less than this is that how all fantasy baseball works you pay for players in dollars no some of them are, are uh in a draft format where you just call out a player and he's yours. Is, is the dollar format more common in fantasy baseball? I'm not sure, but I've always done the dollar format. I've, I've, I've been involved in the fantasy league since 2003, but it's a national league only fantasy league, and it's a dollar format, and it's a keeper league where you get to keep a certain number of players if you want from year to year. That's cool. It really bugs me how snake draft is the prevailing format in fantasy football, which I think totally sucks, and auction format is far superior. Yeah, you know, A. Brown is talking about the uh, the, tr- the 
the charge for the steak at uh, the Nobu he's been to, I guess uh, the Nobu I was at was cheap compared to that. $38 an ounce, it wasn't that expensive, but uh, it was still pretty expensive. I just, you know, I, I just hate when I, when I, uh, when I pay $50 for something or $55 and I guess something where the portion's pretty small and I'm still hungry. Like, I feel like if I'm going to pay like $55, $60 or something, it should at least be like a large main dish. I just hate when uh, it's like something relatively small. So, uh, uh, yeah. I have a new video that I'd oh, like uh, wow. everybody to go check out oh. when the show's over. What is that? Is that the, uh, is that the one about uh, the, the recut of Rounders? Yes. Oh. Yeah, so he's uh, he's kind of changed the meaning of rounders. I watched that. It was very funny. Thank he... you. Go ahead. You, you can talk about it if you like. Oh, no, I was just saying thank you. Um, okay. Yeah, that's basically all it is. It's like a trailer that uh, takes things out of context and changes the story, hopefully yeah. uh, for humorous effect. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, check that out. It's uh, where, where do they find it? SeriouslySerious.com? Uh, no, I'm I'm kind of lazy about posting things to my website these days. It's just on YouTube. If you uh, if you follow my channel, it's on there, Mister Seriously Serious. Yeah, you know, Beeb's in the chat. Uh, I have to admire this. She I posted something on her Facebook, or I think my Facebook, um, related to uh, feminism and how it relates to cases like the Jody Arias case, the, that murder case. And uh, she actually said, "You know what? You're bringing up a good point. I'm going to bring this up to." Uh, uh, one of my teachers, and like she, she's in a college class where I guess the teacher is a big feminist, and it may even be some kind of women's studies class or something. But uh, so I was like, oh, that, I, I'm interested to hear what the teacher says back to what I wrote. But then she said the teacher didn't get back to her, so that's too bad. I was like, just I like making waves by proxy. I like, you know, like saying something controversial, and someone else repeats it to someone else who gets pissed off. That makes me feel good. But. Uh, I guess I didn't get a reaction on that one from uh, from her teachers. She just didn't answer. What was it, what was it all about? My my point was that um, something I absolutely hate in these murder trials, where women are the accused, and where it looks very clear that the woman is guilty, is when and when she they kill like a boyfriend or a husband, is when they start bringing sex into it and they take a a mostly normal guy, and turn him into some sort of sick pervert. And with things that really are not that off the wall sexually and, and use that as a defense for why they had to kill their husband or boyfriend. And and it's just so stupid. Like, oh, when we were in bed, he, he whispered this to me or he whispered that you know, he wanted me to pretend like I was a schoolgirl. And then somehow they, they paint that into the guy being a pedo. And uh, a lot of times these women get off of these murder charges with either you know not guilty or very light sentences. It gets reduced to some sort of manslaughter. And when it's so clear that they killed their husband or boyfriend in cold blood, and they should be getting life in prison or the death penalty, but but definitely not like you know either not guilty or or or, or three years in prison, and that's what some of them get, and, and a lot of times based upon this sort of defense. And I said this unless the the sex part of it really has to do with the case, that this shouldn't even be allowed. This should not be considered relevant testimony. So I, uh, I thought that was. The general rule is that irrelevant, uh, irrelevant information kind of gets stricken from the record. It should be, but, it, but somehow this is, is is twisted to be relevant, and it's always women using this as an excuse. These evil women that kill their uh, you know, their spouses or their boyfriends. And I, I know, as far as uh, crimes against spouses and uh, lovers, the men are almost you know they're they're overwhelmingly 
uh, more commonly the aggressors. They're more they're usually the ones who uh, are the violent ones. The women are the, usually the victims, but, but sometimes it's the other way around. And in, in the cases that's the other way around, I just hate where that's the defense. You never, of course, never, men never use this defense. Men never say, "Oh, I I killed her because she was she was being too nasty in bed." Like that would get laughed out of court. <laughs> but uh, but but somehow the the women get away with it. And we're not talking about women that do it in self defense. That there's a clear history of them being beaten or abused, or or even their husband forcing sex upon them when they they don't want it. And and you know it's kind of like a spousal rape situation. Th- these aren't really happening. They're they're just like weak claims that their husband is is some sort of deviant or pervert, and 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 pressured them into doing this or that. And and for that reason, uh, that 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 that's some sort of abuse and that established the pattern of some other abuse and therefore uh you know it was okay to kill their husband and it's just so i was saying that uh, so the point i brought up about the related to feminism as i said how come every time a woman is a victim feminists always make a big deal out of it but whenever um you have a woman like jody arias making up these stories that they have nothing to say they never condemn it they never say you know what we're always talking about rape and how terrible it is and um you know and and, and all that but we never bring up the women that falsely use rape or falsely use um, things like rape to get uh, out of legitimate Who's Jody Aris? Is that the woman that was recently caught uh, making face rape accusations like no, 11 no, she, times? No, she killed her uh, her boyfriend. Okay. And, recently and there's a woman that, that accused like 11 men of rape. No, uh, no this is different. Years. This is someone she, who, uh, who used her uh, who made up a million different excuses, would not admit that she killed her, her boyfriend did she stab him 27 times? Yeah, stabbed him 27 work? times. Made up a million excuses that she wasn't there for it, that she doesn't know who it was, that it was an intruder. It was like a million different stories. Finally, when they, they kept presenting the evidence they had against her, she finally said, all right, fine. Yes, I killed him, but here's why. So that, that's her current story. It evolved from, I don't know what happened here, to I know what happened, but it wasn't me, to, okay, it was me, but here's why. And um, I, I hope the jury doesn't buy it. But, but you know, there was a case where... A woman killed her husband, who was a preacher. And the reason she killed him was that she fell for the Nigerian scam. And he found out about it and was pissed. And they had an argument. And then, as far as I know, she didn't. Uh, he didn't hit her or anything. That he was just obviously angry that she blew the family money on a Nigerian scam. And uh, with his back turned to her, she blew him away with a shotgun. And both of her kids testified that they never once saw him abuse her. And um, and obviously they weren't afraid of him. He was dead at this point. So, you know, they had no reason to testify against their, their mother this way. But, uh, they, you know, they said that they've never seen her mother get hit by their father ever. He, never, he was never abusive. And uh, she got off with an incredibly light sentence. Something like, like six months or something really ridiculous like that. And and she admitted she killed him with a shotgun, but she claimed it was you know she was a victim of abuse, and and she brought out these like high heeled boots and showed that he wanted her to wear those during sex. Well, who cares? So what? So the guy wanted to see his wife wearing high heeled boots. Like like why is that ever having to do with uh, with any kind of murder trial? So uh, you know what I was saying with the feminists is they they don't ever want to criticize women like this. They don't want to ever criticize women who claim rape falsely or who uh, who use. Uh, false sexual claims against guys, and you know that that you know, in order to excuse their, you know, their, their murderous behavior, they don't ever condemn women like that. They only condemn the men who victimize the women. They should condemn it on both sides. And what I've always said is, if you're really a feminist, 
and you really want to see rape stopped, you need to go after both the rapists and you need to go after the women who use false claims of rape in order to get back at men. And I, I know that most claims of rape are legitimate, but they should really be going after the women who delegitimize it. Yeah, it's they, kind of counterproductive to strive for equality but still support double standards. Yeah, so the they, they can. Like if they want rape, they want um, stronger penalties for rape, if they want rape to be taken more seriously as a, as a very major and serious problem, they, they need to go after both the men that committed it and the women that pretend it's been committed so they can get back at them for breaking up with them or whatever. But they, you never see feminists going after other women in that way. And uh, and that's what I brought up on my Facebook page that you just uh, that they need to go after all sides, both uh, men and women. And yeah, you know. false rape accusations really awful for several reasons. I mean, aside from the fact that innocent people go to prison over it, it, it sort of it sort of makes people more skeptical when when real rapes occur. And people are always ask you know people have to, people start asking themselves, well, is she just making it up or did this really happen? Yeah, it's, and, it's very tough because because when you have like the stranger rape where just some dude grabs a woman out of nowhere in the park somewhere and throws her down and rapes her, that's, that's pretty clear that it really happened. Uh, but when it's something like a date rape case where uh, you know the two people go out and go back somewhere alone, but the but the girl doesn't you know doesn't necessarily want to have sex with the guy and then he forces her to, uh, if that really happened, then it's definitely rape and the guy should definitely go to jail for it. But but then there's the question: Did it really happen this way? Is she just regretting that she had sex and then he didn't want to call her the next day? Is uh, it, was she too drunk to really remember what happened? Like, there's a lot of questions about it, and unfortunately, uh, um, because of the the frivolous rape case, rape claims that are made, uh, it takes away from the real ones. And and I really wish it didn't happen because I want to see all the actual rapists, date rape and stranger rape, no matter what, all the actual rapists uh, be put away, no question about it. So I, I really. Uh, it, it needs to stop on both sides, the the false claims and the uh, um, you know and the act itself. And you're always gonna have you're always gonna have freaks out there that rape women. You, that's never gonna stop. It sucks, but it, there's it's just, you're, you're always gonna have some degree of crime of all types. So uh, there's another interesting side to this that I think is a big problem, and it's that when accusations like this come out, the uh, the alleged victim uh, her his or her identity is always protected, but not the accusers. And this is before any convictions come down or anything like that. As soon as the accusation is made, uh, the media can print the accused name. So even if um, even if the defendant uh, gets off and is cleared of all wrongdoing, that stigma is still attached. His name is tarnished forever, and it's a pretty serious threat to well, yeah, uh, even to just threaten someone. Well, I'll, I'll say that you raped me. Yeah, it's, that's that's if there's an arrest. They can't it can't just be an accusation, but if the guy is arrested for it. Um, then, then they can publish the name, and that you know that has been a, a form of criticism. And uh, I, I can understand why uh, they, they don't like to publish the victims here, but I think they shouldn't publish either name. I, I, I think definitely the victims should be uh, whenever there's some sort of uh, false claim that's proven to be false, that should be uh, all over everywhere to dissuade people from pulling the scrap. But uh, you know, s- someone says in the chat, uh, oh, I see this is a, a gimmick account named a retired pope. Said seriously, Sirius's voice reminds me of an altar boy I once knew. Nice. <laughs> Do you know who this is? No. He's, I, he's been giving me some grief tonight. I hope it's not Jay Searles. It seems like whenever we get a new account in the chat, it's Jay Searles. It probably is. They, they just appear out of nowhere, and they 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 have a lot to say in the chat. They seem to know everything from the past, and it's always Jay Searles. Can't we can't get rid of this guy? Well, Todd, I, what's I, up, I, man? Why can't we just like? 
ban the whole range of IPs for his whole state. Well, I did. I did ban his IP. I'll have to see what. Uh, I mean, I may be falsely accusing the the, the good pope here, but uh, yeah, maybe this really is what the retired pope is doing. Maybe he's retired and now he's listening to PFA radio. I, I guess he can. I guess we could have a. I'll have to see if the IPs in the Vatican. But uh, anyway, um. I, I actually have a reason I have to end this show a little bit early tonight, and that is that uh, Benjamin stayed up very late last night, and uh, therefore uh, he also woke up very late today, and that means he's going to stay up very late, and when he does that, that means his mom has to stay up late, and she has to work. So uh, I told her I would try to not make this a marathon show, so this way... I can uh, take over for Benjamin when it gets too late. Uh, you know what? Just, uh, just go do what you got to do, Todd. I'll take it from here. I'll <laughs> take it from here. Well, you can start another show, you know, if you'd like. Yeah, I, I could. I, I just have this funny thing about just, like, walking away and, uh, and I have no control of anything. Like, right, like, the problem is you don't have control of the show. Like, if anybody calls in, you can't take the call. And, uh, and I won't have control because I won't be there. I'm also afraid, like, I'll say something embarrassing and my microphone will pick it up. That'd probably make the best segment of the show, too. You know, um, do you remember the time I docked down when, uh, I don't know if you were around then, but, uh, after the show was over, they accidentally left the microphone on, and even though nobody could hear it, I was still connected on Skype, and I heard everything they said in the background, and no. Adam Schoenfeld talked crap about me, and I, I got <laughs> to, and then I told him I heard it, and it was really awkward. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, I uh, encourage all listeners to call into the Mount Charleston phone uh, after the show, anytime during the week. Leave some voicemail. Yeah, that's true. I'll set it up. In fact, it is set up for voicemail. You can leave it right now. Now, the great mystery I've never solved with that phone is that somehow it changed from my girlfriend's voice to my voice. Now, I could understand if something changed and her voice just vanished and it went to a default message, but it had my voice given I, I never actively replaced her voice off of it. It's almost like I—it's almost like it reverted back to the original message I put up there. It's too bad people liked her voice too. Even bad guy said, "I can't believe that's your wife." But he's wrong. It's not my wife. I've never been married. Well, Todd, if you like it, you should have put a ring on it. I still can. I still, I still have that chance. I just—I I just never been married. I, I have a kid, but I've never been married. I'm 41 years old. But, uh, We'll be back next week, one week from today, 7 p.m. on uh, March 5th. That will be the last show until March 19th. We'll have to be taking a week off, but we will be back next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Seriously Serious. SeriouslySerious.com for all your music needs. You can do the honors. Shalom.